Welcome back to Manhunting, in which Waypoint and friends are working through the filmography of Michael Mann and examining his themes of labor, craft, capital, and dudes rocking. Today, as usual, we welcome Nextlander's Alex Navarro. Hello. Philadelphia's Dia Lucina. Hey. And we also welcome a more civilized ages, Austin Walker. Hey, that's... Uh, wait, hmm. <laughs> uh, Patreon.com slash civilized. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, you kids like Star Wars? Uh, so we're here to discuss uh, Michael Mann's uh, 2004 Collateral. And here is my here's my argument for Collateral being Mann's best movie. I think he's made films with better scripts, like The Insider. I think he's made films with more memorable action sequences, especially like Heat. Uh, there's films that are clear about what they are capital A about, like Thief. And before and after this, there are probably films that are greater triumphs of cinematography. But Collateral is, I think, always like solving the conversation for like second or third best film across all those metrics. And it is also a film where every time I come back to it, I come away with subtly different reads on the characters and still find myself wondering uh, what that relationship in the end is between the two leads. Uh, but let, let's set it up. Uh, Man's Collateral is an all-timer one wild night movie. The entire thing takes place across the night shift of L.A. cab driver Max DeRocher, uh, played by a fastidious and shy Jamie Foxx. And what begins as a typical night turn takes a turn for the magical when he picks up a driven but reflective U.S. attorney, Annie Farrell, played by Jada Pinkett Smith. As he sits in the glow of her having given him, him her number as she was being dropped off, uh, Tom Cruise's Vincent hops aboard uh, with an irresistible offer to Max. Uh, impressed by Max's evident expertise and efficiency, Vincent asks Max, Max to be his driver for the night. No sooner have they embarked on their journey, however, than it is revealed that Vincent is a professional killer uh, with some in incredibly bad luck who is in town to massacre a series of targets. Uh, by turns, Max's captor, partner, and maybe even mentor, Vincent forms a strange bond with the cabbie as the two regard each other from the perspective of two consummate professionals and find in the other a funhouse mirror of themselves. Uh, I'm thinking we'll talk about the the major plot beats that ensue across the uh, across the course of this movie. But Austin, you you actually took a special interest in this episode of Manhunting, so I, I thought I'd lead off with you here. Uh, I've given my take. What is it uh, that speaks to you uh, when it comes to Collateral? So I haven't seen this movie probably in a decade, uh, maybe maybe more like five years, but I, it might it might have been a decade. Um, and I remember at the time, uh, I remember seeing it in theaters. Uh, and and leaving feeling a lot like what you just said, right? That like there are some things about this movie that don't make it the number one uh, across these things. I think that there are some clunkers in in some of the writing. Um, I think that the pacing has 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 a few issues, but it, it's uh, the the script overall and the performances by Fox and Cruz stuck with me for years. Um, their relationship. Uh, and trying to unpack exactly what it was, realizing, you know, my read on this film is a, that Tom Cruise is like just an extreme, or Vincent, this assassin, is just an incredibly lonely guy, right? I actually think Vincent, you could do the Tom Cruise is Vincent read. This is a person mm -hmm. whose only fulfillment is by putting his body into increasingly dangerous situations. Um, uh, but their relationship, uh, I think, it doesn't just function. It like uh, it it sticks with me in a way where I'm still trying to unpack who is in control 
at various points in the movie. Uh, how much is is Max lying to himself? How much is Vincent lying to himself? All of this gets more interesting when you start to peel away some of the prep work these actors did for these roles. Um, the fact that like Vincent has this deep backstory and like knows where he's you know Tom Cruise knows where that character is from because man like showed him the neighborhood the character grew up in and which foster homes and orphanages he bounced between um, comes through. Uh, and I think it's for me looking, I was looking at Cruise's, um, I was looking at Cruise's and, and Jamie Foxx's uh, uh, filmography. And I think that there's something of a moment of a turn for Cruise. Cruise had been an action star at this point for since the first, uh, uh, Mission Impossible film, obviously, um, uh, in a big way. But there is something about the intensity in this role, uh, the almost unchecked, scary energy he brings to like holding a gun that feels like we're moving into that than the current period of Tom Cruise. So it's really that their relationship and the intensity of, of their performances. Um, that that made it stick with me. And I also just had to think about it for a second. And yes, the last time I saw this movie was when I lived in Southern California. Uh, I revisited it after being in LA for about a year and being like, huh, okay, <laughs> does this still hit for me now that I've been in LA? And parts of it really do. I think parts of it don't. I think the centrality of the MTA <laughs> is very funny. Uh, like, uh, it comes from a place of I suspect it comes from a place of Michael Mann living in LA and having feelings about the train and and stuff, but it is still so funny to me that you do an LA movie, a driving movie that ends on a train, and maybe we can unpack that a little bit when we get there and what's going on there. But Well, we know he's a leftist. <laughs> he loves trains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh Alex and Dan, I'm curious uh what your impressions were uh going into this movie. What like what did you take with you into what you uh expected? from collateral uh i mean so i saw this when it came out in theaters and i've seen it multiple times in the ensuing years and i've always really enjoyed it uh both as a you know one of the high watermarks of michael mann's la nighttime obsession like just in terms of trying to capture the vibe of that city and the feel of it especially at night i think you know what he does as far as like trying to to capture that in this film in particular, I feel like he gets there a lot more than even he does in like heat. Like there is just a, a living, breathing quality to the city in this movie that, you know, isn't front and center because it really is a movie that is about like four or five people total in a gigantic city. But like the way it's shot and the way those characters are sort of like, you know, presented against the backdrop of the city, I think is still holds up as some of the best, like, shooting of 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 Michael Mann's career and just sort of capturing the essence of a city. But also, you know, it is Cruz's performance, I think, in particular, that has always really stuck with me. Like, Jamie Foxx is very, very good in it, and I think he is a perfect foil for the kind of character that, that Cruz is playing here. But I've seen a lot of people describe Cruz in this movie as sort of like, he's not even acting, this is just mask-off Tom Cruise. And I kind of don't agree with that necessarily, because the thing is, I don't think Tom Cruise has a mask. There is an <laughs> artifice. There is an artifice there. There is a, a, a incredibly rehearsed friendliness that is so much the essence of who Tom Cruise presents himself to be in the world. And that's here in that performance as well. But I don't think that it's like there is actually this incredibly sociopathic like underbelly to it. 
like the artifice is part of the whole presentation. There is no actual person under there really necessarily. He's just an incredibly driven person that, you know, knows how to work the system, knows how to make things happen for himself and just goddamn loves movies. And probably probably also does some evil shit in the background. But, you know, nonetheless, <laughs> I don't think that this character feels like him taking the mask off and showing like the real, you know, dark side of Tom Cruise or anything. He's still playing a character here as much as he plays in any other movie. <clears throat> and this is to my mind, one of the most man characters that has ever existed, despite the fact that he didn't write this movie. Like there has never been a more archetypal man character than this incredibly driven, slightly complicated hitman that has this very elaborate system of how he gets around the system, the city and does his jobs that maybe isn't the most well thought out it's thing the in the leap world. You have to take with this movie. Yeah. yeah. It is the thing uh -huh. you have to just hold hands with the conceit, but he makes it believable. Yes. You know, he's the most Michael Mann character has ever been because one of the last things he says is, I do this for a living. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? This is my job. You are <laughs> fucking with my work. Yes. God. Uh, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, was this a, was this one of the man films you had a relationship with before we started this uh, no. project or is this <clears throat> no, new to you? Um, that's what I was going to say. Um, the Insider was my last, like my last man film. I haven't like, you know, um, I saw man movies with my dad and like, like by 2000, like well, Ali came out and like by that point, um, like I hadn't seen, I didn't see Ali. Um, we didn't see this. And then he's kind of, you know, uh, by this point I was in college, I was deep in college. My dad had like a new wife and like we met Sundays for brunch. So we didn't go to movies and like hang out the way we had been, you know, when I was younger. Um, so I never saw this. And then I just I never saw it, never saw it, never saw it. And people kept talking about it and I still never saw it. And finally I was just like, now I'm on a man podcast because I got to watch it. Um, but it's funny because this was my dad's favorite movie. And all I can think of when I watch this movie is in the, like just the first like two minutes of the movie, I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this is the grainiest fucking film I have oh, ever yeah. seen. How what the shit? Like I know they shot this on digital, but this isn't digital footage. What the shit, man? Um, and then like we finally get to like digital. I'm like, oh, you shot this under the worst conditions in the world, and you had to match the footage. So this whole movie experience for me was just like nightmare problem after nightmare problem that like cinematographers were having to solve. And so honestly, do you like, think it coheres visually or do you think that like they're needing to duct tape together something? I, I really do you think it has when I say cohere, what I mean is do you think it has a visual identity because of that or do you think that it yes. is a, okay? Um, so I think it does have a visual identity. One of the things that does interest me is I really wish I could go back and see this on a 35 millimeter film print mm -hmm. and see how that works because that is going to change the splicing of the various digital footages and the film footage. Um, because like right now, if you watch it, you can tell immediately which one's a digital, which one's a film, where they're swapping for it. Um, when they've pushed the gain to like, you know, six decibels versus 12 decibels. And I wonder if um, with a film, a film print, you could actually, that, that took away from some of that kind of demarcation. But I do think it still has a coherent, you know, kind of visual feel to the whole piece, um, which it's was one really of the impressive. Most striking things out the gate, right? Like I feel like 
what you get right away, the, the two things I get right away about Los Angeles um, from this movie's first 10 minutes. I mean, one of them is highways, so three things, right? Obviously, it's, mm-hmm. it's a driving movie. Um, is one of them also Jason Statham? One of them is the transporter <laughs> is here and he's delivered. He's the, transporting. And he's transporting. Yeah. I truly, I own like this is a sidebar. This is the, I believe from the short research I did, this is the highest grossing Michael Mann movie in his career. I think that might be true. From what I checked yeah, last night right. when I looked around. And I, I'm not saying that's because of Jason Statham, but I, <laughs> obviously it's a, it's partly because of Tom Cruise, but I think that there is something there. I remember being in college at the time and be like, Jason Statham and the transporters in that movie. That's a fun little Easter egg. It's not an Easter egg. He's a, he's like, it's a, it's not, you know what I mean? I, so but, people were tweeting at me saying that, that it like Michael Mann has said that is supposed to be the transporter character. Okay. And I'm like, I need to see a citation I, of this yeah, because if that is wait, the case, wait, that's is hilarious. Anyone, is there that citation? Like, I couldn't does, find it. Does I Michael could not Mann find it. know who the transporter is? I bet he does. I bet he oh, loves the transporter. Yeah. I feel like that's exact. Again, like it's a job. That's movie. exactly what Michael Mann's yeah. job yeah. is. He transports. 100%. But my point being, I think that there is something about the casting in this movie in general. I think that Jada Pinkett Smith and Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise all pull in different audience and and the transporter Jason Statham. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you in know, his fifteen seconds. In his fifteen seconds, I pull in different audiences in a way that's like, yeah, this is going to be his. This is a big crossover movie based on mm-hmm. who is in it. And it like, you know, I'll I'll put it this way: I am biracial. Everybody on every side of my family, we were talking about collateral that year. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, well. Let me go back to one thing I was actually trying to say really quick, which is <laughs> L.A. is a place where not everybody speaks English. This movie opens immediately right. with people speaking French, with you seeing – I don't remember uh, if it was an Indonesian um, uh, newspaper or a Hindi uh, uh, newspaper. I don't remember. I, it was on the screen for like two seconds. But like constantly in the fir- in the opening act of this movie, people are not speaking English. They're watching soccer from a from a non English broadcast, etc. Um, uh, and then that the city is like at a distance. The city is in black and white. It's desaturated. The skyline specifically. So much of this movie is black, white, red, and yellow, and that is it. Right? You get some green outside one of the clubs, and you get some green at the very end. Um, as the action kind of comes to a halt near some some greenery and stuff. But like it is black and white because of the way everything looks so desaturated and grainy at night. Um, all of the yellows of the even of the the uh, skyscraper lights have been drained out of them. And then you get the bright saturated yellow in the foreground of Max's Jamie Foxx's yellow cab with the red markings. Yeah. Uh, and and it's silver because <laughs> It's it's silver like Bacardi silver, the advertisement mm-hmm. on top of the cab the whole time, and like the quote unquote silver fox that is Vincent. Um, I think that those that produces such a, an interesting sense of what the city is. And I haven't quite decided if it means that Vincent is right or wrong about Los Angeles in his estimation of it early <laughs> on. I think he's wrong about it, and but doesn't speak the. It's like he knows the vocabulary of a place, but he doesn't know the language. He knows that. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles is sprawling, but he can't understand that that gives it its own communal air separate from the way he thinks about communities, right? Right. He sees it as purely disconnected. 
But like then but he spends half the movie in clubs where people are are pushing up against each other, small interesting communities of Korean Americans and Latino Americans, right? And so like it's wild. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's interesting because like one of the things I think about, like you hit it on, like, you know, the colors in this movie are yellow and red and like there's a green cast to it because they decided to go with green cast like lights for lighting everything because man wanted to do it warmer. But honestly, like it's the wrong decision. Uh, (laughs) I agree with the cinematographer on that one. Um, But like it's funny because going, you know, this film lost best cinematography to a very long engagement, which is a fucking orange film. Yeah. Yeah, that whole movie is orange. That's the, but that's the have, Amelie like, goes to war movie, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a bad movie. No, but it shouldn't have won for. Best and it is very orange. Least. She's right. Mm-hmm. It's it's entirely but orange because Janae knows like three colors in the whole world. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think like, for me, like, but, I I love how much establishing of detail and theme there is just in this opening. Um, we see, yeah, in addition to that, like noisy but like diverse and warm chaos of the opening i think we also we see some things about max immediately which is we we see how fastidious he is how mm-hmm. like you know we've all ridden in cabs mm-hmm. the thought of my cab driver taking time to double check all the indicators and like whether or not everything's working in that cab i'm to like spray down the dashboard that no mm-hmm. one sees mm-hmm. Yeah, he's um, always on a clipboard, like mm-hmm. writing down his fares in the middle of his. And maybe that's a thing a lot of cabbies do. I, I guess I don't know, but they're showing it to us. They're showing yeah. us all the ins and outs of. They're showing us a routine. What he does yeah, exactly. And also, and mute, to a degree, yeah. this is also I like how the payoff works for. Um, you know, there's a good feature right about this city of night, which gets into the various aspects of production. But one of the things that you get a taste for is the amount of like oral history man did for this film to prep these actors for the role. So you got Tom Cruise off at combat ranch, learning like SAS, like Mozambique drill shit. And then man and Fox are doing roundtable interviews with like veteran cabbies and just and, and lines. They say just make it into this film basically intact, which does make me wonder there is a screenwriter credit for this, but man notoriously loads screenwriters into a cannon, shoots them out of it, <laughs> and then like re- rewrites the film uh, <laughs> as it develops. Um, but like there is that like again, as soon as this comes up, man thinks like really being about your business, knowing your shit is inherently cool. And like it's cool when it's about guns. It's also cool when it's about like wiping the dash down in your cab. But another. Another beat I love here also is that you get a sense of like how overwhelming the world can be for Fox is this like deeply introverted character. Like the the sound cue is he seals himself inside his cab mm-hmm. from that noise and the the, the constant sound of argument uh, is is really striking that like he like that this is when he is alone in that cab. This is like maybe the best part of his day, or at least it's the private space he goes into and retreats into. And that is where he is most comfortable and a lot of the like a lot of his daily struggle is having to endure uh you know the shit that cabbies endure asshole fares um just the the stress of driving and also uh like having that solitude routinely like tested and violated yeah i love i love this shot of like when he slams the door shut on the argument because there's no cab (laughs) on earth that is that 
no. soundproof. No, those no. <laughs> caps do not shut out the outside world. No. But for him, it does. And we get that symbol symbolism of him slamming the door and then boom, it's silent. And then he just like can focus in on the Maldives. Mm-hmm. I I just want to briefly touch on the screenplay, which you mentioned here, yeah. which is written by uh, Stuart Beatty, uh, an Australian screenwriter. I just kind of want to mention some of his other credits because you talk about taking an original screenplay and shooting it out of a cannon that I, I can't imagine too many other screenwriters where maybe this was the most appropriate decision because before I I've this seen his name before, before this, he wrote the screen story for Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl the year before this. And then he went on to write Australia, the Baz Luhrmann movie, and G.I. Joe, the Rise of Cobra, and I, Frankenstein. (laughs) So not exactly a lightweight here we're working with. This is what man I, Frankenstein, was great when I was high. He wrote four episodes of the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which, Rob, I I don't think you've gotten there yet. Are some things going to click into place for me? It ain't good, bud. Yeah. Yeah, this is man like man's like, well, this guy fucked it up, but I'm the option, the script so I can use these ideas and I have to worry about it. And then I'm just going to redo it. And yeah, we we do see that, like, you know, in that featurette, like shit, I wish it would be an awesome feature if they just recorded the interviews with those cabbies and like, let me hang out and listen to the cabbies talk like Studs Terkel type oral history stuff of these guys talking about like what it is that they notice and what it means to be a good cabbie. And that's what a lot of this centers on. Um, and, you know, our, our first real, you know, it, like time to really sit with Max as a character is when he picks up Annie uh, at, at the airport. And these first two fares, uh, the cab is in keeping with that ceiling, ceiling himself inside. The cab is kind of a cozy, intimate place in these first two rides. And we get, uh, you know, as, as man sort of points out, like a lot hinges on the scene because Annie's going to play a huge role in this film. So she has to like she has to be a character that sticks with us uh, despite the sort of non sequitur introduction. But one of the things that is so striking here is we don't we don't yet know how. The image that Max projects here is not who he is today. Like this is, this is Max rolling twenties basically on his, like on his demeanor, on his, like the, the impression he makes Um, because what it's playing into, like, you know, their conversation center on the areas where he's competent and also calls out. He's enormously smart. He is incredibly observant. Yeah. He is the, the thing that we get here, you could leave this thinking, Oh, this is a smart, confident guy. And what you learn through the rest of the film is he's a smart guy who doesn't know he should be confident. Right. That like, oh, he could do what he could do what Vince's job is. He could do he could he could have done what Annie's job is if he'd had the right life experiences line up. He has that in him. But in this moment, it's the right context for him to tap into that and be the best version of himself. And she's also written as a character who is like particularly able to pull that out of him. Right. She's playful in exactly the right way. She's not dismissive of him because he's a cabbie. I think there was the moment when he says, oh, this is just my fill-in job. This is just part-time, blah, blah, blah. I don't think she doesn't – I don't think that she doesn't see through that a little bit, that he has a little bit of a pipe dream thing going oh, yeah. on. But he's able to talk to what that pipe dream is, and it's still kind of charming when someone has a pipe dream, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm charmed by it anyway. Mm-hmm. 
Well, he's not bullshitting is the thing. That's like, he right. doesn't come off yeah. like a person who's trying to be too slick or too bullshitty. Like he comes off as a person who is maybe a little bit reserved and a little bit incapable of expressing in totality the way that he feels about things. But, you know, like they have an initial easy chemistry. And again, she's a U.S. attorney. Getting things out of people is kind of her job. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, he's right. He takes he's right about the the what, the route. Right. He's right do, about how I long do, it's going to take. I love the, the the route talk discussion because like one, like, you know, one of like the easiest like screenwriting tricks is to like to establish a character's identity is to like have them <laughs> tell a cabbie like their job. Right. Specifically a cabbie, like, no, no, take the 106. Like, no, okay. Like, we know who this character is. But, like, Jada understands the character and, like, knows how to, like, deliver that line in a way that does communicate who this character is. Um, but then we also get him, like, with the beat. And then he's like, you know, I think I should do this instead. This is oh, what I'm so going to do. Good. And we get the back and forth between them. And it's just like, congratulations. Like, you know, and I know this wasn't fucking Stuart Beatty's work. Mm-hmm. Um, but like having the two of them play off this, like, you know, challenging the directions uh, is just really, really Each funny. of them topping the other. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. Is yes. the, it's like, I, I feel like LA and New York are the two places where this conversation plays out like most identically mm-hmm. with the like well do you know about what happens uh below this cross street on this on this major artery you don't want to uh, you know you don't want to be there right and it's like so how are you going to top that and he's like well i get off that and it's great um the other the other thing i love is there is a beat where you see her sort of decide okay now i'm interested in the guy like there's a beat where like she sort of tunes in and she decides I am going to sort of breach this barrier and now mm-hmm. like like just get to know uh, Max beyond this and sort of tries to lure him out with that with that note of, uh, you know, if we were if, we, if you'd listen to my advice, we'd be, we'd be stuck in traffic. Um, one question I had is. Is Annie what Annie describes about like her pre like her pre trial jitters, Max hears that. And it sort of seems like he he reaches the conclusion that like this is a character who's like stressed as hell and maybe close to burning out. You know, he sort of says like you need a vacation, uh, and and gives her the little picture of the <clears throat> of the island that is his mental retreat during during the day. Um, and I'm curious, like for me when I, when I think about this, in some ways there's like three visions of performance that are presented here, where like Annie is confident. Uh, collected but there is like a core of self-doubt that is just part of her process and she has to engage with it and it like ruins her right before like she has to go do the performance and then she nails it and that you know when Max hears that he's kind of (laughs) appalled by it a little bit but it sounds (laughs) like a tough it sounds like a tough gig Max I think we you know we learn He's actually all doubt, not about like the immediate thing that he does, which is like driving a cab, but like any decisions beyond that, like how does how do I grow this beyond what it is? Like, what should I do with life? He is he seems like a guy who is constantly sort of second guessing himself and finding reasons to sort of like stay passive. And, you know, the third model, I guess, is Vincent, who is no doubt, but no humanity that he is. He is all performance, all technique. And there is nothing like complimenting or contrasting against it. Um, and that, and that There's vision no of becomes kind of terrifying no, as well. Yeah. I mean that for me, that's part of the relationship, part of the thing 
I think there's a lot of contraction of time in this movie, not just it's a it's a movie about a night that takes place in two hours, but in terms of their lives and their relationships and that. But I think that the their relationship to time and performance is really interesting to add on to what you said, where like for her, she does months of investigation, months of prep. She stays up all night. She throws out her opening argument or her opening statement and rewrites it. And then she goes and does the thing and, it, and enjoys it. Performance is a thing you build up to and you do it. And then you start to build up to the next one. For Max, he is performing when someone is in the cab, but other, and then in between cab rides is like just in maintenance mode, right? He does not building towards anything big. He's in, I'm going to get back to zero. I'm going to get back to the, the cab is clean. There's no food everywhere. You know, I'm going to be at my, my normal even keel. And then Vincent is all performance, right? He's like always on in that way. I guess we do see him prep throughout this. And in fact, prep becomes an important part of one of the narrative beats in the movie is him losing his prep and needing to recover it uh, or losing his information. But he's always in game mode, whereas she builds up to it. And there's a sort of staccato rhythm for Max between driver and maintenance mode. And I think that that's also interesting. I think all that just, again, comes from man having that interest in the way we relate to our jobs and our, our work and how that intersects with our identity, right? Yeah, it's it's the thing I didn't really pick up on until watching it this time is that, like, you know, I the easy back and forth that he and, like, Annie and, and, and Max have, you know, it, it plays by pretty standard beats of screenwriting and sort of building up their characters. But there is a very specific thing where you kind of see him you know, he, it's when he mentions the, you know, you need vacation thing. But he, the thing he realizes is that, like, she has the same kind of self-doubting personality that he has. Mm. She has found a way to harness it and to redline it into submission. <laughs> and he admires that, but also is also a little wary of it because that kind of scares him a little bit. The idea that someone could take that mm -hmm. and just sort of, like, wield it that way. Well, because he shuts it out. He right. shuts yeah. discomfort out. You know, he, he looks closes at the, the door. He goes to the Maldives. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Totally. And like she's just like, okay, I'm gonna feel this discomfort and process it. So I'm gonna <laughs> bathe in it, basically. Yeah. Well, like, and that ends up being the thing, right? He loses the picture. He can't go to the picture anymore. His safe, protected space of the cab gets broken, right? Like he he can't be safe. He can't shut out the outside world anymore. Those things end up being catalysts for him to eventually change who he is, right? That's the yeah the short version of this movie. Though it's also funny that he gives it up. Like, yeah. so willingly, which is just like, okay, Jada, I'm, you like, you know, got this guy, you got I Max know. wrapped around your finger 100%. here. 100%. He's definitely like, damn, she's a that, very that pretty eyebrow lady. lift. And just, <laughs> she's boom. extremely pretty. Yeah, she's <laughs> extremely pretty. I, it's, it's, they're actually, it's so funny to look at them both in this movie. He is so pristine. His shape up is like, the edges are just uh -huh. immaculate. Um, uh, and it's like, but he's wearing a hoodie and a t-shirt. And so he isn't dressed for the job he wants, but he has the haircut for the job he wants. You know what right? I mean? Or he has the, actually, maybe that's not wrong or not right. He has a clean haircut that stays out of his way. Right. Whereas, right. Mm. but he, but he knows how to read the world. He knows how he should dress if he wants to be the limo guy. Well, when he, when he itemizes like her, her like, yep. Like it is, this is somebody who is keenly aware of what people across different strata of life are doing and how they live their lives. Uh, and that's something like that requires work. That knowledge requires work. You do not like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I, I do not know what good brands are at all. And I certainly can't recognize them. You know, if you pick like if you set like a half dozen handbags in front of me, I couldn't tell you which, which the good ones are. He knows immediately. He knows what they imply. He knows like the social coding that goes into. Right. All he right. specifically says you're not in marketing 
you, he knows that you're wealthy, but not in marketing, right? You're not just yeah. uh, uh, you're not ad, a business person. You're not a business person. You're in a different role. You're a lawyer, right? He gets that and right. I don't think he knows how impressive it is. I don't think I don't think he knows how like that attention to detail is impressive. And I think with with the hoodie, I think to a degree, there's an element of like he's very fastidious and he takes great ca- like care and even pride like in keeping him and keeping himself and keeping himself neat. But like I think so much of the way he dresses and lives, he's he's passive. He doesn't want to be observed. Like he, right. like Max yeah. is very much do not perceive me. Yeah, and Big like mood. part of what makes this night so dramatic is that two people notice him, like back to back. Two people don't just like notice notice him as a good driver, but like they perceive the person in ways that like with with Annie it's exciting and like intriguing, and with Vincent it's scary. Uh, but is it? But, also but, is, but is it scary because it's actually just as enticing, and he hasn't yep. considered yeah, the mm-hmm. possibility. Um, I mean, it's literally the same thing, right? It's like the thing that that you know, Vincent shows up. It's, it's a classic. It's a classic Happy sexual awareness week. It's on, I have my sexual <laughs> awareness week. Yeah, it's also just a classic. You know, the hitman walks past their target moment because Vince comes out literally on the same block that he just dropped off Annie, um, and you know, almost doesn't get in the car because because Mac isn't quite ready for him, and then just calls him back and he gets in the car and the first <clears> thing he says like, "How long is it going to take me to get there?" And he goes, seven minutes." And he goes, seven minutes, not six, not eight." You know, uh, mm-hmm. and it's the same. It's the same beats that he. Just, it's like it's like speed running mm-hmm. the conversation he just had with Annie, um, except he's a little more reticent to play along because he isn't Jada Pinkett Smith. And it's also with a person whose entire person he doesn't know this yet, but whose entire yes. existence is predicated on never being noticed. Yes, a hundred percent. Wow, true. There's there's a little detail to that. Like, is it the choice crew is made? I, I do like it. Every time something catches his attention about Max's character and make and like further, like, uh, like causes evidence to accumulate that they are like kindred spirits. There's like a little hitch, like the robots programming skips for a second. It has to like replay the last thing. Yeah. And when he gives the like down to the minute estimate of when the thing is going to be there, uh, like, but that and the, the cleanliness of the cab immediately, Vincent is like kind of struck by that. But what's what also like I note in this opening meeting is, Vincent tries to strike up a warm like dialogue with Max as well. And it doesn't work. And part of it is, yeah, Max is actually still probably thinking about Annie and, and like what, what that portends. But also I do feel like, like Cruz's character, there is a falseness to his warmth and friendliness that like it is, he is trying to get info on max he's prying immediately into places that like you know you shouldn't with a stranger but he's like just sort of aggressively ferreting the stuff out max when the same opportunity comes up to talk about uh what his business plan is that he's getting together this time he sort of slams the door shut and doesn't want to get into it of course that might also be because he knows that in some ways a guy like vincent will see through it that the Mm -hmm. we should talk about what the dream is because It's beautiful and I think it's very sad, especially in the context of like what Ride Hail uh, is going to do in the next like <laughs> 10 years following this movie. But like Max has a dream of leaving his cab behind and running an elite limousine service. Mercedes Benz S class all the way. But not just that, not just nice limousines, island limos. It's a cool groove. It's a cool groove. 
What does that mean? It means it's a cool groove, Rob. Shut the fuck up. Would you turn down a limo from someone who told you it was going to be a cool groove? (laughs) You're not going to want to get out of the cab when you get to the airport. You're going to want to stay in the cab. At LAX, not a hard, that's not a high bar. No. (laughs) But but this is the thing. It's like, it's, it's like, I sort of get where he's like, I want to give people the experience that I get when I see my photo. And that's actually a really giving and thoughtful thing. It's a beautiful dream. I just don't know how you turn it. And it's untranslatable, I think, into there's limits to what you can do. He's like, the things I'm good at as a cab driver can translate it into a high wage, high prestige profession. Probably not, especially because limousines are going to be commodified in the next 10 years. And like Island Limos, whatever brand they built up would just become another Uber Black uh, before the bottom drops out of that market. That's the thing about his character, like, you know, that we really get from him is that, you know, even in 2004, the idea of like, you know, the bespoke limousine that takes you from the airport to your destination like, that's nice. Dude, I was getting, like, you know, like, the black town car that yeah. you get at, like, JFK. Mm-hmm. You know, you pay, like, you know, a little bit more. You might, you know, you're not insured and bonded and things like that. But they let you smoke in the cab. They, like, uh-huh. let you have drinks and food. Like, they'll stop on wherever you want to go on the way. Like, you know, like, this has existed long before this movie came out. So it's not, like, this it's kind not of an like, innovation. He isn't figuring not something out. No, he he is like looking at what his like what he perceives his skill set is, and what his skill set is like. He's like huge, but he can't see it beyond the cap. Yeah. yeah, he can't get beyond his cap, which like literally, like you know, his world is you know, we never see his apartment or anything like that. We don't know about like you know, we we eventually get like his mother's existence, mm-hmm. um, but that's drawn out by the outside world forces him to go do that. Um, but, you know, so he. It, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, just but with a character like this, though, it's pretty easy to imagine someone like him who is so passive and so introverted just fixating on a thing that, like, is a very what feels like a very realizable dream, even if it isn't necessarily one that feels like it's going to be very viable. Right. And just kind of sitting on that thought forever without both neither the means nor really the understanding of, like, what is it actually going to take to catapult me into making this mm-hmm. happen? Yeah, he gets well, his spare five minutes. He's going to look at that S class list of features. Yeah, and, and in, that's in the, the dealer thing. binder, yeah. you know, the S class. Oh. He's chosen a car that he will never be able to afford to get this thing off the ground. Like he's specifically chosen it. Like a, he has chosen a, a vision of this business whose startup costs will be so prohibitive he will never be able to launch it. And right. like it, like it only it only clicked for me like this time watching it when when Cruz says something later about like all it would have taken was leasing a town car. And that's right. But yeah. Max is like, it has to be an S-class. It all has to be premium. Well, that's the thing is when when he says in that later scene, he says, how much money do you have saved up? I, when I first saw this movie, I I probably read that as, you don't even have enough to do this. What he, I think he's actually saying is like, you have more than enough to start this and you mm-hmm. won't pull the trigger. You you are afraid of moving forward in that in this way, right? Um, like you're stubbornly creating extra barriers for yourself. Exactly. There are two things that that hit me, or two things that, that I want to talk about based on what you just said, or just want to mention. One is short, and it is the second he said he wanted to open a limo business. I had a dream double feature in my mind, which is this probably preceded, um, pro- probably preceded by Cronenberg's Cosmopolis, a movie that I think sure. is unfairly <laughs> uh, uh, maligned. Um, I think double feature driving movies. 
It's for people who don't know, Cosmopolis is based on a DeLillo novel, as adapted from a DeLillo novel about a hyper rich super capitalist being driven through New York City in a sort of a near future dystopian modernity. Um, uh, and it's just this, but flipped. It's just, it's still a sociopath in the back or in the back of a car for, for mm-hmm. two hours. Uh, the second thing is, I think coming off of the, the Uber stuff, this movie exists at such an interesting technological yeah. moment. It's so fascinating to have this flick where there are USB drives and tablet computers, but no smartphones. Right. right. Well, no, uh, there's there's almost smartphones because at one point Mark Ruffalo says the words, I want you to email it. No, right. to my cell phone. To my cell phone. Yeah. Right. He does have email on his cell phone, but he has a flip phone. Right. right. Yeah. Um, that's the, it takes him 15 a- minutes to text anyone. <laughs> it's so expensive. Later, don't we see Tom Cruise basically holding a fucking engage? With that, like a full that, type pad that thing. That is his. I looked up that That's computer, his. Rob. Yes. So that is a <clears throat> that is a HP Compact TC one eleven or uh, eleven hundred rather, uh, which you know I bet you can get these on eBay today for for nothing. Uh, it looks like I had two gigabytes of storage, a ten point four inch, uh, yeah, a ten point four inch LCD display. Four USB 2.0 ports. That's more Damn. than any what? laptop. Has yeah, what? <laughs> we have oh, to. Sorry, 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 sorry. Desktop might sorry. even have that many. That was the docking station. The docking station oh, okay. has the, oh. the USB ports and the say, laptop. The Cartagena cartel the- spares no expense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I love it. I love his little hybrid tablet so much. And it's just like we don't. We haven't hit mid 2000s tech nostalgia yet i don't know that we ever will but this movie makes a good case for it to me totally yeah the, no i miss the, my clamshell okay look, every day, we all do. Every day. Look, I, look yeah. I miss also phones that you could conduct conversations over like this is the last era where like you hop on a phone the connection's good like yeah. people sound like relatively like, clear why don't, why don't people like the phones anymore because it's really awkward to always be like i didn't hear you or i didn't understand that and like this was an era where it's like Long conversations over the phone, still possible. Totally possible. Uh, Fairly comfortable, all said. Yeah. Um, before we yeah. leave this opening scene with the two of them, I do just want to read this because the, the 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 back and forth about Los Angeles is so yes. important to me for this film. I wrote down this back and forth. Um, uh, you know, again, trying to make small talk, Max says, first time in L.A., and Vincent says, no, tell you the truth. Whenever I'm here, I can't wait to leave. Sprawled out, disconnected. That's me. That's me. You like it? It's my home. 17 million people, says Vincent. If this were a country, it'd be the fifth largest country. In the, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world, and nobody knows each other. I read about this guy, gets on this MTA here, dies, six hours, he's riding the subway, before anybody notices his corpse doing laps around LA. People on and off, sitting next to him, nobody notices. Um, which I love for two reasons. One is it's just the flip of the Kitty Genevieve's New York City story that gets told and told and told about New York, mm-hmm. which is a much more cramped, not not sprawled out, you know, city. You could just always say this about any city in the world and just make it fit your anti that city story. Um, but again, it ends up being a um for me, it ends up being maybe not a Rosetta Stone, but like a a an important mirror to read. Vincent through um, because this is a guy who professionally goes around and kills people, has no problem chatting them up for 20, 30 minutes before he does it, having warm moments with them and then kills them. 
Uh, and nevertheless, the thing he wants is the warm moments. What he wants or what he knows he's supposed to want, I, I haven't, I don't know, is people that get connected to other people. He thinks that that is supposed to be the way the world works is people are close together. People care about each other. They check in if someone is hurt. They, he's able to say that out loud. And I don't know that he's acting there. I think he genuinely believes Los Angeles to be a bad sort of town. Uh, and I think that that's an important perspective to carry as we talk about what he does going forward. Well, so what you're I saying mean, is he's the vampire Lestat. Yeah, I do. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and also, even there in the text, but that's me, is, of course, double-edged, right? He's giving right. himself portrait. Yep. That, yeah. Like, what yep. scares him about L.A. are the parts about himself that kind of worry him that are going to become increasingly highlighted by by uh max over the course of this film well and this like, is the fucked up oh god yeah we'll, that, we'll, that, that he is he is a man of like disconnected parts and they don't fit together um, but they but they in the same way i'm not, I'm not just giving the read on this movie that i have which is in the same way that max could be vincent if only he wanted to be and put himself there vincent could be max there is nothing he could carry the conversation in a warm and open way. He could do something that is not murder people for money. He isn't – I think you're right that in this scene what's being revealed is an anxiety about the absences in himself, but they're not absences. There's a choice not to engage with that part of himself or to let that part of himself stop him from doing his job, right? Yeah. Um, I think that for me that's why this scene is just like so key. There's there's like a lesser version of this movie where there is some kind of mirrored conversation where Max finally pulls something out of Vincent where he talks about like, well, what do you want? How, are you going to do this forever? You know, right, are you going right, to kill right. people forever? Exactly. What's your dream? What's the thing that you want to do? And maybe he lets the mask slip a little bit and gives something away. But that is not this movie. And I think it's better <laughs> it's because better they don't it. let Vincent ever really stray too far from from what he presents. Well, they're both complete mysteries. Like outside of this, their workplace, what are they? Like, yeah. does Vincent just go around collect piling up money and like <laughs> occasionally going to a nice jazz club? But like that's it. Like what what? And Max, you can also imagine like you, you almost like I almost don't see him having a life that has other people in it beyond like he rests, he does the night shift. Um, notorious for being Sam socially Goody. isolating. He goes to Sam Goody once every gas two weeks. Owners. Yeah, he knows yep. the gas station owners. He and then he has CDs. to go see his mom to get like negged by her. Uh, so here's my on, question. On the regular. Here's my question. The opening scene, Jada, it culminates with Jada giving him his card, her card. With the, with the, ab in the absence of Vincent, does he call her? Never. Never. Yeah. But Hands down. He hand rings about it for a week straight and never does. Yeah. Because now it's too late. Now he it's gets now another photo and puts it in. <laughs> he leaves the card up there because it gets to be a little bit like the, the island, a little mm -hmm. bit for him. He has to think about he, her. Exactly. And then, then he covers it up because it ends up being too close to the possibility. He wonders, ooh, will I pick her up on her way back to, to, to LAX? You know? <laughs> but that's it. What's going to be great is when they, these two crazy kids get married and they have to tell this story at their <laughs> wedding about how they met. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, uh. Also, like, the conversation does end on this brutal note where uh, Max is, like, eh, I'm putting some things together. And Vincent asks, uh, how long have you been driving a cab? Without missing a oh, beat. It's so funny. It's without so missing good. a beat and without even a trace of self-awareness. Max is 12 years. It's mm -hmm. so good. And... 
just to twist the knife, Vincent's like, no, I get it. That's cool, man. You're one of those guys that does instead of talking. Um, <laughs> oh, and so mean. It's vicious. So it's vicious. And also, like, it really does, I think, delude Vincent into thinking this guy's easy prey. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like the, the it also causes him to completely misread. He thinks this guy's going to be a perfect, like, literal vessel to just, like, ride around L.A., and then discard and as we learn later probably kill at the end of the night almost assuredly but it's a it's a bad read on max but it is also critical for understanding what's wrong in max's life uh, and that he'll that agree to this for $600 or $700 $600 bro yeah and he only gets 300 over the front hardest $300 this man's ever made it's so it's it, the way Cruz. Damn, he doesn't get the, the other four hundred, does he? He doesn't Shit. get the other four hundred, Dia. He Fuck. doesn't. It's fucked up. Damn. Uh, and I so bet he's suspended at least. I bet he's suspended at least one night in jail. Like I like Annie's at the end of all this. Annie's going to get him out scot free. It's not going to be a problem. But he's suspended at least at some point. No, he won't. He is now a material witness against Felix. This occurred I to me this so. time. Okay. Felix, oh, like, yeah. Felix fucks right. up worse Felix than like up so bad. we'll talk about this later. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, the yeah, entire yeah. reason yeah. Vincent is there is to basically like blow up an investigation <laughs> and guess what happens over the course of this night. <laughs> God, I didn't even uh, think about that. But anyway, shit. so but it all but also like the the other leap you have to go with here is that Vincent is a hyper competent, uh, supremely skilled uh professional killer. And the first hit and the easiest one. Like, this is a tutorial level. He's taken out by a coffee cup. It's just he fucks it up. He fucks it up. (laughs) He can't. Like, the guy's just sitting in his bedroom and somehow manages to stagger to his feet and fall out the window onto Max's cab uh, as he's contemplating his his S classes. So I I gotta say, I I, I knew the premise of this movie going in Mm. and like, and like a lot of people would be like, oh, it's like really absurd because it's, you know, he's carrying around this this hitman from job to job. And like, you know, I did not expect that like from the very first one he knew, I was like, oh, we're going to kind of get, it's going to be like kind of like an ongoing thing and a things are going to like pilly up, pile up, pile up, pile up. No, I, oh. so when the body dropped, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I'm done. I walk. Sorry. I, like, such a good moment. You're going to have to kill it's me. so good. Like, <laughs> and Jamie Foxx like, really just nails the what the shit a body just found. Well, and this is watching that uh, featurette and seeing they do a cool thing where they show the table read, the rehearsals, and then like final cut. And it is so striking how much of those performances get refined and enhanced yeah. through the like mm. those early reads. Both are really flat in terms of what they are. And by the time you get to the final one, like the wit and like cold terror that like like just sort of envelops Cruz is finally there. He's kind of boring and bland in the earlier like table reads and the rehearsals. And then final cut, he's like scary, cold. Uh, And then Fox has really dialed in the. Uh, you know, in early reads, he's just a complete nebbish, uh, and 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 kind of doing a lot of mumbling and and sort of kind of like having to think through what's happening. And this, you know, in the in the final performance, we see a guy who, what's so, he, <clears throat> you know, Fox is a very funny actor. He's a, he's a yep. gifted comedian. He's a he's a he's a gifted. They talk about it. He's like a a, a supremely gifted mimic. Um, Which but, we'll see later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but one of the things that he sort of dials in here. 
is he basically you can see him talking all the way around what is evident which is that vincent killed this guy yes and he keeps trying to fill vincent in on can you believe this crazy thing happened <laughs> but it's so like he's clear. waiting for him to tell him you're right i didn't do this we yes. can keep going yes. <laughs> uh-huh. it's it's uh, one of my favorite things about that featurette is man saying there is no method there is no single method to acting right and that this is where they end up talking about about fox as a mimic and a comedian finds this character refines it dials it back um uh, makes it legible instead of it just going for the punchline and needing it to be like this thing this character that's just like is in a mode that the audience can bounce off of. And for Cruz, it's all about physicality, which was, again, it was so funny to hear someone say that in 2004, this thing that has now become what is in every review of every Tom Cruise movie, year in, year yes. out, is about, you know, he isn't great at delivering dialogue necessarily, but he communicates so much with his body. He enjoys acting with his body so much. And like, man had him dead to rights with that in 2004, which again, it's not like there weren't other movies that he was starting in on that. But here, I have to wonder how much of the quiet terror in this character comes from the months of gun training being in the alley, the physicality of being in the alley, the way he pulls the gun up on Max. Uh, all that stuff is like his so body's po- terrifying. His body's terrifying in this fucking movie, uh, and and you know uh, we will again get there. But the stuff that happens around what does being a hitman look like mm-hmm. feels right on the edge of a turn in the way you know we don't get to John Wick without Vincent from Collateral. Probably there's a certain yes. A Vincent Collateral can, yeah. is the is the is the blueprint is the blueprint. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so, well, yeah, I think the scene is just is is it's, it's really it, it is funny. It gets to be funny. It's yeah, which is which is why the movie's good. Well, it gets to be funny because it also it doesn't just rely on Fox and Cruz delivering punchlines to be funny. There's some good physical comedy in there, both with the the initial landing and just the bit where he just tosses the body off the roof like a fucking like a rag doll and just like lands in a lump on the ground like that is just a great punctuating moment oh. there of like no we're, help me we're My putting man, this in the fucking okay? trunk oh, no you're not okay you're dead <laughs> just the way he looks up at the window and then looks oh. back at Jamie Foxx it's so good oh it's so funny god uh, the other thing is like so the weird thing is this is like I think this this seems like it's one of the most good vibes productions that man ever oversaw. And what's funny is it all goes to poison with Miami Vice. With you working with Fox mm-hmm. again. Like Fox may have had enough. And it comes through a little bit where like man will just like do take after take after take. And digital is maybe one of the worst like things that ever happened uh to people have to work with a director like this because now you can just do takes. It's just hard drive space. Yeah, it's now well, so like every- yeah, everything I read about this is that like actually viewing the dailies too, or like the, like the the like viewing the scenes, and, like was such a like a difficult thing to do. But because it was just free, you know, not only were you having like these like massive pauses between takes, so that like man could see what was going on and have to like have it interpreted, you're still having like the oh well, it's free to do takes. Let's just keep doing takes. Yeah. It's just because it took forever to like queue up the file and it's a lot like, of the, one of the cameras it. that they were using um, because it was just the raw video footage. It came through unprocessed, so it like looked really fucking weird. 
Um, like it would have like a horrible green cast to it and things like that. So no one could really see what they were looking at until it had been processed. Um, so there's a lot of like weird technical issues with shooting with digital that like, you know, slowed the digital process, but didn't change the fact that you could kind of like infinitely do the digital process. Uh Yeah. And like, you know, Fox talks about, uh, you know, just waiting for man to give the thumb that said like, we're, we've got it. We're, we're good leaving the scene. I think the more revealing thing is Ruffalo talking about, you will just do like 70 takes of the same scene until you're just, he says you're just reacting to stuff in the scene. You're just in the scene and you're kind of just like, I think he actually says like, you're, you're, you're just kind of losing your shit. And I think this is the reason why you do not see a lot of repeat flyers uh, for Michael Mann. He's worked with hardcore, like Cruz, mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. people who like into this kind of shit and still like one, two movies is like the limit uh to this listen man um, he's about his work you know it's mm-hmm. <laughs> well it's, what's funny is J- like jada pinkett smith comes out of it she's like i love it like and right. her prep was maybe the most absurd he's like you need to sit with this family this is your this <laughs> is your movie family this is your movie and it's gonna family. teach you where annie comes from this is your pre- he, the specific thing he said that she says is he put me with two people a, a, a couple and said these are your parents this is your character's parents I was like, what are we, what are you doing? That's, is that relevant? What is this, to this? giving you? What is, it? and it worked. I get it. I get it. You know what? Where did she come from? How was she shaped into the type of woman she was shaped into? I get it. I get it. It's just very, oh, I, it's just I get very it. Funny. But I also understand why by the end of Miami Vice, Jamie Foxx is like, fuck you. I'm not <laughs> shooting the end of your movie. <laughs> I want the footage. I want the footage of all of it. I want the footage of the of. I don't remember where where was where was Vincent's character from. Not was it Akron, Gary, Ohio? Indiana. Gary, it was uh, Gary, Indiana. Like he's from Gary. Like, I know exactly where Vincent is from. I want. I want the footage. Of the, I want them in Gary. I want to see them talking about this character. I want to see the conversation with Jada and these two people who are apparently Annie's parents. I want, I want to the see, exit interviews. Yes, I want the whole. I want it all. Like I want it like a Friends of the Table season, like weird side game. Like I need it. I need to see the the peripheral materials to help everybody get in character. God. Uh. You know, that also sets us up, uh, you know, right after, you know, basically it's it's mask off. Like, here's the score, Max, and you're you're kind of my hostage. Uh, we get to his first, like his second hit of the night. He is about, he, he ties Max up in an alley. And right as he's about to leave, Max's boss calls in because the cops just called and said, your guy's driving an unsafe cab and he's going to be called back to the barn. And his boss is an asshole. And is trying to do the like it's coming out of your wages type thing. And so here here's the other part of this movie I think resonated with me so much is yeah, Vincent is a monster, but also isn't this movie a dark fantasy of like he's Max's monster in this moment? And it is Vincent who's like because it solves my problem, but maybe also for reasons beyond that, maybe he is as morally offended as he appears. He's going to say the things that Max can't bring himself to say. And he's going to kind of turn around and tell Max the things he needs to hear. And like, so there's this weird thing of like, at the most, you are my prisoner and you're like, you're like, you're, you're captive. Uh, in that same moment, Vincent is also kind of liberating him from this petty tyrant 
that he works for, where he he gets on the radio because Max is completely uncertain how to respond. Uh, and he adopts the persona of. And here's the other thing. Does he see the, does he see her name? And that's where he gets the idea of being a U.S. attorney. Oh, he pulls down the visor on the. Uh, huh. Yeah. Well, he and pulls he says, down the visor, but he has her info, too, is the thing. He has he read ahead? Yeah, it's weird. Huh. Like, does he already know the name of the girl that Max is hung up on? He must, but he sees her earlier, too, and doesn't right. do anything, right? So, yeah. like... So maybe he hasn't looked. It's hard to say. But yeah, yeah like, I mean, he has all this information, but all that stuff probably presumably came in that briefcase that he picked up from Jason Statham at the beginning. Right. right? Yeah, yes, so he's got all the information. I mean, I imagine like, you know, like the reason he saw her earlier and didn't act is because he knows he has like, you know, this process. Like, right. Right. You know, just like Max, he is very fastidious. He has a process, even if he's kind of bad at it sometimes mm-hmm. and people jump out of windows. Um, but yeah, I, I but just yeah, you're love, right. There was a motivational yeah. speaker aspect to this character there is a well yeah there, there's a little bit of frank tj mackie in there you there know is, like yeah. There's, yeah, yeah, yeah there is a, like a much a, a less overtly sexist version but yes, <laughs> yes. there there is yeah. a little bit of that in there and also i don't know when he's like when he's like i want you to call her i, I said like, less not yeah, okay. not okay, okay. <laughs> yeah yes. but like i think in that moment yeah it is it is definitely him being max's monster but i th- feel like it's twofold it's like one he wants Max to kind of go along with him for as long as he's willing to keep him alive mm-hmm. so it kind of behooves him to you know, endear himself a little bit to Max, despite the fact that he knows he's never going to get him all the way over because the guy does not like murder. Uh, but the other part of it is that I think it just annoys him. I think it seems like the idea of seeing someone get, you know, kicked down by what you described there as a, p- a petty tyrant, like uh, for a person who is all drive and all confidence, like fake or otherwise, like that's just irritating. And that's that like there are moments in this performance where it really feels like Vincent's whole thing is that he's just annoyed at Max and he's going to fix the problem for him so he'll stop whining about it. And, like, there's might be a, additional annoyance around just, like, y- this is a supremely talented dude. Max is yeah. good at this job. Yeah. Y- you're a piece of shit because you're you're treating someone who's better than you in a way that's demeaning. Max is the best driver in your fleet. You don't even understand it. Right. Yeah. Like at the end of the night, I think Vincent feels bad about having to retire Max. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, I mean, you know, I was, I was, I was I joking when to. I mentioned, when I said Vampire Lestat earlier, but like, I'm only partially joking because it's the same archetype. Like, like, yeah. this is someone who cannot have a friend, but really wants that connection. And like, even if like they're like, you know, toxic and bad and, you know, would it inspire them to be a killer if they could? Um, <laughs> He still totally. want to like you know make their life better and not like put up with like the horrible people that are in that person's lives that they come encounter with. And then of course the flip side of the scene, if we're talking about like dark fantasy, is Max basically get mug gets mugged as he's as he's pleading for help <laughs> and gives us the, the shortest sequence. and I still think maybe coolest action sequence in man's entire career. Yo, homie, is Yo that homies. my briefcase? <laughs> Just is that my briefcase. There are 75 takes somewhere on a hard drive of Tom Cruise saying the words yo homie. <laughs> that my briefcase? <laughs> oh. Too good. Yeah, they roll up on him with the yeah, they so they take a bag from from the car. They take his bag from the car mm-hmm. because because Vincent has has 
zip tied Max to the wheel. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's easy for them to quickly rob him. And then, and then it happens so fast. He, they pull a gun on, or they, they already had the gun out. Vincent walks up to them, their gun already out, and he produces his instantly, and again, does some John Wick shit, uh, quickly dropping them with like three rounds each, picks up his bag, shoots the other one who's still struggling on the ground, and gets back in the car. The headshot as he stands up and turns away without looking, the no-look headshot is like, it's absurdly violent and absurdly cool. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, it is like qualitatively, like, Heat gunfight and yo homie that my is that my briefcase like both just like up there on Mount Olympus of like Michael Mann action sequences and I think for similar reasons like this to pull this off requires so much prep mm-hmm. that like you are saying months of prep work go into I just need one scene that's going to establish that Vincent is a action like an action character that you have not seen much of in movies. And I, I do think you're right. right. John Wick like leans into this and is like, people love this. This was oh, mythologized, I think, it. for this era. Yeah, this yeah. was different. Nothing felt like this. I mean, like, as far as the character goes, this is Max cleaning the the you know the console in front of him. This is Max making sure everything is being fastidious. It's like showing us what he how good he is, Vincent shooting people. But like I cannot overstate how new it felt that a person would move a pistol like this in close quarters combat in i mean there's a line in that in that featurette that really gets to the heart of a lot of the action in this movie which is like yeah of course we don't cut during our action sequences we practice this for three months like we practice this for three months so that we wouldn't have to cut we wouldn't have to bring in a stunt man we wouldn't have to like have the sort of broken up action sequences that are about to come really in vogue in the later half of the 2000s. It's all very smooth and it's it's precise and striking because Tom Cruise worked on every action sequence in this movie for months and months and months until it was pitch perfect and you didn't need to cut to, to make it sensible, you know, or to cover a mistake or whatever. So, And I think like, <laughs> yeah, go for it. I was say like it's jarring watching this scene because I wasn't expecting it. Like I wasn't expecting like you know at first when Jamie Foxx so is like loud. banging his head and then you get the herd of like white guys coming over. I'm like oh god, please don't like be a weird white supremacist scene, uh-huh. Michael Mann. Please don't use this as your excuse <laughs> to say the n word a thousand times yeah. in a movie. Like uh-huh. please, 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 God, please, please. Holy shit, Tom Cruise just murked the shit <laughs> out of those guys and he moved his body like Tiny Tim. That's <laughs> true. It's incredible, and and they, they like they do subtly hint at it. I think that one of the guys has a little swastika tattoo under <laughs> his eye, but they do not oh, lean into the the so racism funny. aspect of yeah. it. Of course, uh, I do want to rewind for one second to yeah. unless we have anything else on this scene uh, to to another one of another dialogue sequence. Uh, or it was. I think it's after the cops. It's after the cops pull them over, which also has a great line. The cops have a have. There's a line where the cops are about to go open the trunk, uh, and Vincent just says to Max quietly, "If you open that trunk, they go inside." <laughs> which is That's, yeah, no, because that was just making me think about the line here. Is it like when you call attention to yourself, people yes. that die, you don't have to die die. Yes, that's like another that. great line. And yes. like those two lines together, like back to back, kind of like sequence wise, like really draw home like kind of what like vincent's deal is mm-hmm. like yeah. he's a he's a businessman yes you know? and also, he doesn't okay, want to so, have to kill these cops because that's bad for business so 
that also reminds me uh, another thing I, I skipped over, but you're you're uh, sort of putting in front of mind right now is there's this thing he keeps tra- doing rhetorically, which is trying to make Max like complicit in yes. some mm-hmm. of this. This is the thing like, I wanted to actually get this to is on going. you too. But yes. the other thing he uses to juxtapose this is his like explicit nihilism. Uh, which yes. is basically used as a permission structure to let him feel like oh, morally okay with carrying this out and being this agent of violence in the world. But his argument, like before that, the argument they're having before the cops pull up is, what do you care about the death of a stranger? <clears throat> the, you know, it's the, it's almost like um, this great line in Shadow of a Doubt, the Hitchcock movie, where uh, like James Cotton's character tells, uh, you know, his, his niece who's figured out that he's secretly killer, you know, the world is a horror show. Or, or something to that effect. And this is this is Vincent's argument that like if it's happening in front of you or across the world every day, uh, we live in a world of like needless and senseless violence. Why does should the, this one trouble you? Right. If you're he, a hypocrite for even feeling troubled. He said this is he says, like, do you know about Rwanda? And Jay Fox, you know, Max is like, yeah, I know about Rwanda. And this is the the, the exchange that I wanted to zoom in on was him saying, man, I, so he says, why don't you feel anything bad about the, you don't do any, you didn't get up and join, uh, save the whales, Greenpeace, save the whales, Amnesty, Greenpeace, International. Amnesty International, et cetera. Um, and he goes, man, I don't know any Rwandans. And, and Cruz, Vincent says, you don't know the guy in the trunk either. But it's like, this is him not understanding that Los Angeles is spread out, but that it's still a fucking city. He doesn't need to know the guy in the back. This is his home, right? The, yeah. Fucking Max lives here. These are his people, even if they speak a different language, even if they're watching sports he doesn't watch, even if they're playing jazz and he doesn't like jazz, they're Angelinos, right? Like they're his people. Uh, so he has that connection that Vincent can't see because from Vincent's perspective, no one is connected anywhere in the world, let alone in Los Angeles, this spread out distant city of absences and empty streets. So I love it. It's great. It's yeah. it's. It's a complete it's the thing he doesn't he can't put it together. And I just I love that so much. So we have another little bait and switch here from from Vincent. <laughs> Good news. We're ahead of schedule. <laughs> this, is like the, this is the game master reading the next chapter of your adventure. Good news. You are ahead of schedule. Amazing. Vincent takes you to a gas station, informs you your next stop will be a little break from your night of murder and mayhem. You're going to a jazz club. Do you like jazz? Oh doesn't matter vincent will explain jazz to you vincent loves jazz very much and this I'm will so be a glad good that michael mann watched ken burns documentary in oh. 2001 oh well no because you know, this is me listening to your podcast isn't there a scene in crime story crime story yes yeah. miles davis is it, yeah miles davis was on both miami vice and yes. crime story and and who gets up on the stage to play? Which white dude gets up to, to play on Crime Story? I don't the remember. The lawyer in Crime Story. Sure. Yeah, so we, of course, are going to get another Miles. He's already a, a jazz fan, so he's going to work it in. Again, uh, I do think Michael Mann has a strong desire to do concert filmmaking. And it right. is sort of wild to me that no one has really tapped him for that since... Since, you know, he has made numerous movies, which are basically there are extended music videos in. Yeah, he, I, was, I was thinking about this like this. This is a performance video for four minutes or three minutes or something. Yeah. Right. Well, he hasn't done like he could do that movie. He could do a movie about a musician. But who would he do it about? Miles Davis is dead. There's no one else. I mean, he could do it about Miles Davis. 
but he could cast somebody else as well. This this thing, right? He could he could do like a performance for his biopic. uh, That's what I mean. Well, and then I mean, this movie too. There's part of me that's like, he could just make the like art films that he wants to about like two characters sort of bouncing off each other. He could do that. Yeah, but that's not who he is. Like in the end, he's like, you know, what needs to happen. A man walks into the room with a gun. With a gun, yeah. A gunfight inside of a, cl- a nightclub. Yeah. Right? My dinner this with is, Andre with a guy with a gunfight. 100%. <laughs> right? Like, I was thinking this earlier, the- this is a stage play, except for all of the big gunfights in public yes. where you need 100 extras. But otherwise, it's just two guys sitting next to each other on a stage. Oh, I don't know. I mean, the theater, you just need them. to symbolize that with like maybe right. 10 extras. It's I mean, a, it's look, a if, choreographed if, if, dance if, piece. If if the kid from Rushmore can stage a full gun battle, you You're know, right. in the middle uh, on a stage, why can't why can't Michael Mann? Look, Yoko Taro did it. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, so, so we Daniel. meet Daniel, uh, uh-huh. who is uh, a jazz club owner and uh, part time performer, and Vincent uh, is just sort of hypnotized by the performance, the vibe of this club, which does look incredible. Uh, it seems like a, a magical interlude. And Vincent, uh, you know, asked, please, you know, I have to I have to buy the the the, the trumpet player a, a drink. He's he's incredible. And so he and Max sit there hearing stories from uh, the old timer, Daniel, played by uh, one of like man's go to collaborators, Barry Shabaka Henley, uh, who there's a lot of points in this movie. I think you say this feels like a turning point. This is one of the scenes I come back to again and again as like completely informing the two characters and their relationship across the night. Uh, but uh, Daniel, I think has a great scene. He's given a lot of material to work with. He delivers a speech about being young bus boy with musical ambitions and getting a chance one night to go up and play a quick set with Miles Davis and uh, like the musicians that were up there that night. And, you know, the the thing that, you know, the thing is, Daniel's story is really resonant with both men, right? Like mm-hmm. in, you know, he he is it, like in a lot of ways, he both represents the absent father figure. Both of them like yearn for and could benefit from like Max, um, you know, the story he tells, he's a guy who had potential and a lot of dreams and they were deferred until they could never really fully be realized. And now he lives out a slightly diminished it still looks like a nice life but it is a diminished and as it turns out very precarious version of those dreams and like vincent you know there's certainly implication that vincent's life was derailed by institutional living and the military Mm -hmm. um and he is evidently the sort of person that vincent could and should be friends with it's evident that vincent is like delighted to be having this conversation hearing these stories but also, Vincent can only pay attention to this guy. He only tunes in because he's the target. And the revelation, it is, it's so cool seeing the scene. Uh, I don't know. Like, I also felt like I, I was seeing this movie for the first time. It's been, it's been a while. But, like, I was more capable of seeing it through Max's eyes, I guess, in this. Where, like, you sort of feel how out of nowhere in that conversation it comes. That little warning rattle, again, from Vincent of, that's a great story. I should tell the people in Cartagena that story mm-hmm. and you know the people in Cartagena yeah, says Daniel Henley's face goes slack he's got that great jowly face <sighs> it's so it's so very good. expressive and the minute the minute that is like broached it just falls 
It's so and, good because oh. Max is genuinely enjoying this conversation, which mm-hmm. is which is so funny to think that like he's now <laughs> helped this dude <laughs> kill two people. Is that right? Two people. Two people point. up to this point. Yeah. Up to two. Yeah. Wait. Well, sorry. two targets. Four. Two targets. Four. Two targets. Four people. Right. Um. Uh. And he's like cutting the rug here in the in the jazz. He's like having a good time in the jazz club talking to this guy. Like. He's he's completely calmed down. I want to know what's going on in his head. Is he thinking, you know what? Maybe Vincent's going to let me go after this. You know what? We met this dude. This dude gave us good vibes. Vincent's going to go on his way. He's going to give me the other $400. And that's going to be my night. Gone. Erased the second this dude's face drops. And he and he does the bargaining, right? He well, says... This is, this is the other question. Oh. So... Again, one of the big questions I have is, what does Vincent actually feel for Max? Because what we see here is, I'm, 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 I'm curious. Like, is this just a predator playing with his food before before he kills it? Is is he toying with the idea of legitimately letting him go? And like, the technicality does like force him to face up the fact he does have to kill this guy, uh, or is this just sadism? Um, uh-huh. I don't know. I I think it's a mixture of things because it, the impression I get is that. Like, Vincent is genuinely interested in this person and this target and this life. He's like, oh, we're going to a jazz club. That seems genuinely exciting to him. And the stuff about, you know, improvisation, mm-hmm. fucking, you know, bebopping and Darwin and whatever the fuck. I ching. Like, I do believe he believes that. And I do think he does find interest in this. And, you know, I think when he's when he's rapping with this guy and you know, hearing the Miles Davis story and stuff, like, I think he's genuinely, he finds it kind of interesting. He's never not going to kill him, though. Like, he is toying with his food to a degree, but I don't think he's doing it because he enjoys the sadistic aspect of it. I think it's because he's enjoying actually respecting one of his targets for a moment and kind of appreciating, you know, sort of the the backstory of this person. But he's never faltering on the idea that he's going to kill this guy. So you think this quiz show bargaining is him just prolonging the moment before he has to do what he, what he has to it's, do? It's prolonging the moment and also giving the guy a ray of hope. That he won't have enough time to feel crestfallen. <laughs> that about. occurred to me too. Yeah. Is yeah. that he kills Daniel while Daniel still thinks he's given the right answer? Yes, and it's over. Yeah, he has no time to react to it whatsoever. And it is like so. In that case, I think he's genuinely like he wants him to feel like he had a chance, even though he didn't. But so I think that's pretty much the same thing he's giving Max. Was he looking for a reason to prove that he was, you know, he was justified in doing this all along? Because he goes, he acts like he's like, he's like, no, you gave the wrong answer. Ultimately, because he dropped out of music school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. He did give the wrong answer. I mean, it wasn't so like complete. there is like, you know, it's like a, you know, oh, wow, I have this human connection. I need to I need to I need to prove it. To you. It's mm-hmm. a false connection and that this warmth I'm feeling has to be transient because people will always disappoint you. Yeah. And that's how Vincent gets through being a hitman and then you never know, Max, allowing himself a connection because everyone fails you comes up something. short yeah yeah and and max does ask him he's like what if he had gotten the answer right would you have still killed him would you have let him go and vincent doesn't answer like he just yeah. stares him down and i think that is the moment where it's like you're you can give as many you know like dangling threads of hope as you want but there is there's nothing that is going to divert you from the thing that you have been tasked with doing but there's a little beat here that again I love so much. Cruz catches his head and gently lowers it to the table. Yeah. But as he yeah. does it, something passes across his face that is very weird. 
like there is a look of like revulsion or disgust or sickness like and i can't like the, the great thing is you can't figure out for, like for me is it that he instantly regrets what he just did the fact that like shit maybe i could have spared him or is he just puzzled that he now feels a conflict where before he never did like is it the fact that like something about this night something about max it's all breaking down none of it feels right none of it is working i can't, i don't know but like you see like just flicker across that face just a really profound uh like brief portrayal of like massive inner turmoil that yeah. gets submerged as quickly uh as it appeared i think it's um, frustration honestly like i think it's frustration with the fact that he is feeling anything and that he didn't like he found someone that he actually kind of didn't want to kill mm-hmm. but he's never he was never like i said i don't think he was ever going to diverge from the path you know like you said the gentle headrest and sort of you know the kind of frustrated pissed off way he says like actually you know like kind of explains what 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 miles davis actually did with his musical education like i think in some way he wanted him to get the answer right so that he would like you know it maybe there was even more hope there in the moment right before he killed him i don't know but like i think it maybe disgusted him a little bit that he didn't know the answer that he was like that he was wrong and that just sort of pissed him i i don't feel like he's actually disgusted or questioning whether he's actually going to go through with this going forward at all right oh See, for me, I think I think it's all like for me, I think the wheels are coming off Vincent's psychological wagon throughout this movie as well. Hmm. Like for me, too. Like for me, that's one of the things that's happening in this scene is like this all used to work. Yeah. Now, like something about this, like being in the presence of Max is making it not work. Um, But I don't think he can identify quite yet that it is Max. That is the thing that is throwing him off. Like he just feels like there is some sort of like. Well, until Max straight up, like, fucking destroys his shit. Like, I feel like at this point, he doesn't really know what feels off. He just knows it's not working the way he wants it to. Well, and that is exactly where we go next is the, the like, the curious kinship is made really more explicit. Uh, as they get into this argument uh, following him killing Daniel, they're sort of interrupted by mm-hmm. the fact that, like, Max's mom is calling. He always mm-hmm. visits her and, like, and so now Vincent saying that we, everything has to be normal everything has to look like it always does they have to go visit max's mom and crucially vincent uh you know made explicit later uh didn't really know his mother and is really sentimental about the idea of motherhood right he's like we have to mm-hmm. you know buy her flowers of course you buy your mother flowers and max tries to warn him you know she's not going to care she's not going to like it and it baffles vincent and then we meet Ida mm-hmm. and it is again, we see that moment where Vincent fully tunes in to a conversation because he sees Ida get the flowers and she's like, why would you spend money on something that's just going to wither and die? Basically, <laughs> why would you, why would you put the effort in to do that? Uh, it's absurd. But then when Max says, I didn't get you the flowers, he did. And everything changes and you see Max, uh, you see Vincent do that double take and fully dial into, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> well, and also she does the complete one. And she's like, you're the one who bought me my flowers. Oh, <laughs> and it's just like, oh boy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Parents. Yep. <laughs> Nothing you do is ever good enough for them, but any stranger shows up and does a nice gesture. It's just like the greatest thing in the world. It's so funny. And I think that, you know, man and his gloss on the scene is it's like a little bit of sibling rivalry. I don't read it that way. I, I for me, I think Vincent is 
intrigued by the complete disconnect in those two reactions and like it's starting to put together that oh wait max and i share having a fucked up relationship with your your sole remaining parent mm-hmm. um that i know that i know this pattern of abuse and disappointment hey what's going on behind her in this what's up with these photos there's some photos of her i think there's also like headshots and like there's something like, or maybe I'm wrong about this, but like, I don't know if y'all dialed in or, or could make sense of it, but like up on the wall behind her is a collection of photos. Many of them are signed or, uh, you know, have um, autographs on them. Uh, was she an actress? Is she like, what? what's the deal there? That is interesting. I'm look. I'm looking at the scene now, and you're yeah. right. I, I noticed yeah. the photo over her right shoulder, which is like a vertical photo that has a bunch of people who are not Max in it. A hundred percent. But like, there's also a photo on the far left. There's a shot at one ten, one ten sixteen, um, uh, that has these just in, incredible array left to right of photos, including her as a child, but surrounded. And it makes me wonder, I like. Is there another conversation that we have not heard about who Max's parents are? Well, like, a, was she a child star? Did was she? Is this part of his dream of of being a limo driver? Is being around actors in LA? Okay, this is weird. Like, I'm looking at the photos now. I can't fully identify what they're all from, but the one on the far left, I think maybe is supposed to be a younger version of her. I think so. But, but is a headshot from the show Becker. <laughs> That is autographed. It does say Becker. It says Becker. Maybe it's a different thing called Becker. And then the one in the center, I think that's Jack A. <laughs> in the like, I think that's Jack oh, A. Is the, is the woman in 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 at the top oh, of that you're photo? Totally right. Oh man. So and then just... on the far right, I can't tell for certain the like the white guy headshot photo. Is that the guy from Dexter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is. I don't. No. I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't think it I is. I don't know. I can't tell. It's a weird collection of photos. You're right. This is a weird collection of photos. Okay. I don't think, I don't think man's just going to let a prop master go wild and just put shit up there. One so, of these is Cedric the Entertainer. Where? What? Is, is there? Okay. So then, when, so when he moves out of the shot, there's like th- the three headshots wait, on the wait. left. The one on the right, I think is Cedric the Entertainer. I think she likes celebrities that is a becker cast shot i think, I think that she is, likes the tv i think she likes the tv mm-hmm. and he wants to haul celebrities around in his yeah, limo that's the okay. story he's told he her. always tells her about the famous people about the famous people yes. oh those are gifts he's given these are these are gifts these are the famous she, people oh don't my bring God. her flowers you bring wow. her autographs we but just he's also this together he got them from, from the people. directly yes oh you won't believe who i have you know, you know Becker on NBC. <laughs> no, not I, him. I, not Ted Danson. The other guy. It's it's the lady from the, the show. It's the lady from Becker. Because Wait, it's dirt is that cheap. Lisa Barton. Fuck. I think it is. That's so oh funny. That is okay. That this is a layer I never would have unpacked for twenty years, oh and I never God. knew the depths. This is it. Oh my Movies God. are about visuals, people. You got to pay yes. attention. You got to in- interpret the image. No, but again, if I didn't have all three of you here, I never would have unpacked <laughs> this ever. Oh, it's a golden moment. It's unbelievable. Okay, yeah, that is Misha Barton. There's literally a tweet. If you look for it, my boyfriend is watching Collateral. We're all very confused about how Misha Barton ended up on Jamie Foxx's oh mama hospital. <laughs> well, oh Maddie Khan, we figured we it figured out. We figured it out. We, we put it together. Wow. 
That's what we, this is it. Trust the process, you know? That rules, honestly. <laughs> the method works. <laughs> anyway. So, but, yeah, so, and she also gives the game away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Max has mm-hmm. been telling her that Island Limos is up and running. Oh. And that, and by the way, like, in Max's defense, it does seem like there's probably a lot of money going into supporting a parent who is maybe never leaving this hospital, but maybe also not dying anytime soon is just going to be like inexpensive long-term care. Uh, and that like may also be a big part of like why Island limos has not taken off, but, but he has told her that it has. And the minute, and that's what causes the, the psychic break for Max, the humiliation of having her give the game away. And Vincent now know that other piece of information, which is that this guy's lying to his mom about his shitty business idea already being a smash hit. And Max, overwhelmed by just the stresses of the night, but also a bit like a child. Yeah, it is. It is grabs, so childlike. Grabs yeah. the suitcase, the, grabs the briefcase, and takes off. And here's the thing. He knows it's his weak point, right? He knows. He's seen how how he reacted when the guys took the briefcase, right? Yeah. Uh, and he knows it's his, like, weak point. But he's also going through the material. Exactly. The he's night. going to chase me. He's going to leave my mom. We're going, like, I'm going to get out of the situation. It's the most, like, 13-year-old doesn't want to be at the birthday party anymore. And so takes the cake and runs away. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like freaks out. Does the biggest thing you can think of, uh, the most like anxious response you can have. It's incredible. And it is the like, I am going to destroy this thing. And now, like, what are you going to do? Let's just get it over with. What are you going to do to me? Are you going to kill if me? If I or break not? the rules, what yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing for me. If Vincent's going to do it, he's going to do it here. Like, this is the moment where I'm like, this guy is more trouble than he's worth. Like, this is where you would shoot him if you were going to shoot him. And Vincent doesn't. Like he grabs him by the throat, throws him on the ground and says, you are fucking with my work, which is very different from I'm going to kill you. Uh It's just the offense. Like, how can you do this to me? Where's the professional respect? (laughs) Do you not get, do you not get, I would never do this to your car. Yes, I did throw a guy onto it, but that was an accident. What (laughs) you did was intentional. No, no, no. no, no, He didn't throw him out there. He shot him. The bullets in the fall. The bullets in the fall killed him. Okay. (laughs) So. So, but the thing is, so after the like that moment dies down, they're driving through town, and Vincent like reaches out and is like, he says, like, I do get it. He's like to project onto us their flaws, the things they don't like about themselves. And like gives this real, like, dead-on analysis for parents who just habitually ride down their kids in that exact way. And he's trying to get at like, he's trying to connect over that. Um, and at the same time, he can't help, but also like, it's almost like he knows he's giving away too much. And so he slams the door shut again and does the, and then I killed my dad. <laughs> I was 12. No, he didn't. He didn't. He I didn't. didn't, I didn't. Uh, he died of liver disease. But was his father abusive and drunk all the time? And was he in and out of foster homes? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. How much of that is mm-hmm. him just sort of like playing to, you know, what he thinks to the, this person's backstory should be versus not. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think it's real. Did. Yeah. I, yeah I, I, I do think those parts are real. I think the killing his dad, obviously not. But, uh, uh, yeah. Who could say? But, like, for me, that's that's one of the things where I'm like, I, I do feel like there's a point where Vincent is 
finding reasons to keep Max around. Um, and like is genuinely it is this fact of like, oh, like not only do we share the same values about work, but also like, yeah, I get like how family trauma like this fucks you up. But it all comes out in the weird, like, I am genuinely a sociopathic killer. Right. And it all comes out in the way that a, like, sociopathic, prolific murderer would try to get mm-hmm. that out as, like, hey, here's a, here's a way we can bond. Uh, you ever think about killing your mom? Because I thought about killing my dad. Maybe I did. I think this is also the point. I mean, we're going grainy mode now because more yeah. and more of this film is night. More and mm-hmm. more of this film is empty streets. Uh, I guess we didn't say it explicitly, but Max throws the briefcase out onto the highways, um, scattering all of the hitman prep to the to the winds and to the trucks that run it over, uh, which I think is risky. I don't, I don't know. If I was Vincent, I would try to go clean that up somehow. Um but uh, I do think like this feels like the turn in the movie to where we're going to get more and more of these shots. Dia, you were talking about this before we started. The film stock that's being used to get these night shots and like what it does to the to the image. I guess you actually said some of that when we first started too, right? But it well, just it's, dominates it's, the rest of this movie because it's so much really of it funny because so like eighty percent of this movie is like digital video and like at a time when and like on location video, like that's the the big tip because like you know. Uh, you know, George Lucas famously basically push it, forces Hollywood into like the digital video era, more or less, with the Star Wars prequels. And like it says, like, look, I've I've come down from the mountain. I've brought you the Sony HDW <laughs> F nine hundred. It's beautiful. It's high sensitivity. It's twenty four frames a second. Let's all like rejoice and embrace the 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 digital future. Um, and sensors are here. Kind of, mm-hmm. Most people push against that, but um, the one thing that digital video can do that film can't really do is go real hard at night, mm. because with film, you can you know one of the big difference between film and digital is what's called uh, roll off, and that's how highlights degrade when you have overexposed the frame. Gotcha. Um, we've also we've all taken the overexposed picture of like with like a street lamp, and it's just this white, harsh circle. Or like you know when you like you know um, like Austin, your camera's doing it right now. Yeah, like there's yeah. just this mm-hmm. the the you're blown out. You the blown highlights. Well, on digital video, on digital video, it looks like you know when you blow out the exposure, it looks ugly. But you can pull up a lot of detail from shadows. So because of the sensitivity of like you know, digital video cameras, filming at night, as long as you can tolerate grain, you can film palm trees swaying at right. nighttime in LA that like you couldn't get that on film. Like the shadows would be all blocked up and fucked up. You'd have to, not under the kind of lighting that we're doing with this film. Right. Which you is like, could, did you read that American cinematographer? Uh, oh, it's such a good movie? article. It's so um, good. Like if we can't link that in the show notes, like we should because yeah, it's such an important uh, understanding of like this transition for film and what undertakes it, but also the way the photographers had to deal with mm-hmm. this transition. Um, the DP and it has deals this, with a lot of the things. Go ahead, sorry, finish your. Oh, oh I was say, it deals with a lot of these issues about like roll off versus you know and like um, how um, 
with digital, the issue is the noise th- floor, which is the noise floor is, you know, basically where your signal turns to garbage. And the higher the sensitivity of your digital sensor, the higher the noise floor, but the more data you can capture and recover from shadows. So like with these cameras, they were bumping it to like plus nine decibels, plus 12 decibels, which is like unheard of. That's like shooting at like 1280 ISO kind of like with your, with, you know, if your, 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 your phone lets you do that or your digital mm-hmm. camera, uh, just really high ISO uh, equivalencies. And um to match that, they had to, they were taking the film and they were pushing 800, 500 speed film, you know, two or three stops just to, um, and when you push process something, you underdevelop so that you can overdevelop, overprocess it in, in the print stage, which lets you have a higher sensitivity film negative. Um, but it also introduces grain because the, every time you introduce sensitivity, you introduce more noise right. and noises in, in video in a film process is grain. Um, so we do get a lot of grain in this. The so, line in that piece that that sticks out to me about their process is um, Dion Beebe, who's the DP on this, says that they shot with as little light as possible. Uh, they abandoned using helium lighting balloons because they lit up the street too much. Too much. Uh, yes. Quote, Michael coined a phrase early on, make the fill light the key light. We wanted to avoid a sense of directional lighting. Also, we were cross-shooting a lot with two or, uh, two or more cameras and incorporating a lot of camera movement into shots. So we always had to allow for that within our lighting setups. That meant making use of a lot of practical lighting and keeping our film lights off the floor, which is so interesting to like the way this whole movie looks as we continue. Yeah, like there's so much technical stuff in this ACS article, but I think it's or ASC article. I think it's pretty intelligible, even if you're not like really steeped in cinematography and photography. Um, a lot of it went over my less, head, but like you get those juicy nuggets. Yeah, where you're like, ah, yeah. I understand now. Yeah, but like yeah. you know the way, like talking about like the way they had to like the way they had to hide the lights because you know you want reflections from the city because we, we want these like these right. city reflections so we get the sense of these kind of you know this non-directional lighting and that like the city is all over the place and like you know touches everything but then you also have to worry about Jamie Foxx's glasses right which one of the things i love is the the, the fingerprints on his glasses that like every now and then get picked up um by like you know the camera and it's just like damn you know like everything about his cab is clean but his glasses are nasty yeah that's mm-hmm. so good as someone who has filthy glasses i i recognize <laughs> it real recognize real the the part where they talk about how the basically the interior of these cabs had to be like lined in velcro uh-huh. so that they could adhere flexi led lights mm-hmm. anywhere in the cab to light from i mean just the practicalities of the, in this feature where they talk about they had a fleet of cabs that basically accommodated different like shots uh for for the film but then the notion of like they would have to basically have the cab wrapped in a film rig and just be dragging it through the streets to make it look convincingly <laughs> like it's like it's driving um it's it, it's wild the the effort they they go to and it comes off like this film feels like it like even for a director who often has sort of a documentarian flair this one feels a lot like, wow, it's like they just picked up a camera and started shooting this. And then you look at how much effort it takes it's to create the illusion yeah, that right. someone just picked up a camera and right. shot something that's actually happening. Well, it's uh, interesting also because like, you know, it, it, Rob, you and I are the only ones who ended up doing Ali. But like 
he starts this process in Ali with the with the digital stuff, but that is in shots that feel like they were actually done with a handheld camera. Because it's like very much POV stuff for Ali in the middle of a boxing match or like right behind him as he's like jogging and training in the middle of the night. And I it's I mean, one, the technology in just a few years feels like it is very significantly a leap over what he was using in 2000, 2001 for Ali. But also, I have to imagine he was actually just straight up using handheld cameras in those shots because the way he was getting shake and all that stuff there, I don't think he could have done that with the seven ton rig that apparently he was running for a lot <laughs> oh of this God. stuff uh, to, to get these shots because I saw a picture of it that, that Dia shared and boy, it looks absurd. Yeah, the initial the initial shooting camera that they tried to use was the uh, the Thompson Viper, which at the time that they were using it was not in production. It was like kind of an early oh. test to get, you know, directors to buy in and kind of, you know, offer comments. And it required so much work because of like storage, you know, considerations cuz like, you know, with a with an with an Aeroflex, you just got that film canister. You plop that on the back and baby, put it on your shoulder, you're good to go. Oh, that's 80 um, years you know, of technology development right, right there. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like it is. It's like that we have developed film cameras, you know, right to the edge. Like that is like, you know, right. So in this as year, far what, as the technology need, is gonna go. They need storage to be fast and big, right? right? That's the Yeah, it's gotta be big, it's gotta be fast. And they, they can't do that without a tether at this point. So they have a fiber optic cable that is literally hand, you know, that's it's it's so it's, funny. You know, a, a a leash for the camera. Um, which means you have to like, you know, you're, if you want to shoot through a window, you have to have that trailing out the side of the window and all this stuff. And like, you know, if you're moving, you have to make sure that you don't, you know, rip the cable or get it caught up on anything or anything like that. Um, and so they, 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 but there is this photo in this, in it's in the SC article, uh, where it's just the rig that's like, it's, it's a pickup truck and it's the back of a pickup truck that's just filled with rack mounted equipment and Michael Mann sitting <laughs> with like the DP and the can and their their Viper camera, just like, well, this is how we're shooting now. Um, but they quickly get rid of those after I think it's like the first day of shooting. They said, and they switch to the the Sony F nine hundreds, which become for the next couple of years like the digital camera. You know, right. It's what Lucas. It's Lucas Films Episode Two and Episode Three on. Oh, okay. Um, and like, you know, and the thing is, the, the interesting thing is comparing this film to those films, because those are the cleanest looking films you could possibly imagine. Too clean and right. filmed on sound stages and filmed in, on blue screen and like. No need it, to push up that gain at all. No, you don't. You know, it's like. <sighs> That's so um, interesting. But well, like, you know, he can get these perfectly, like, you know, these these absolutely uh-huh. like zero noise images out of it. But here we're pushing the gain to plus 12 and like, you know, shooting at night and like mm-hmm. you still get like, you know. Like on you can you can see when the digital kicks in. Um, you know, Jamie Foxx's face is not as crisp mm-hmm. um, in those cab shots. So you're telling um, me it's uh it was a lot of work and effort to prepare to then produce a naturalistic nighttime effect mm-hmm. as if it's as if it's no work at all. What's the next scene in this movie? Wait a second. <laughs> it's it's Jamie uh, Foxx pretending to be someone yeah. yes. Yeah naturalistically it's possible i just want to talk <laughs> that's uh, what the whole movie is but one last thing about just on the on the visuals uh a couple things i want to put out here so bear all this in mind the way this movie looks for when we come around to miami vice which is a few mm. years later also shot on digital but the technology is advanced and like 
look at what is possible in Miami Vice versus what like this movie looks like uh, is is kind of stunning. Now, I think he's going for a different aesthetic in that film as well. But like Miami Vice, I think at night you still get a bit of that like digital noisiness. Uh, but that is a film that is also like when it can be, it can be like crystal clear and yeah. panoramic in a way this film is constantly you feel like you're that like they're they're fighting uh the light the lighting a bit and and fighting the grain and everything's like very close in yeah um you know th- there's a sheer i'd forgotten this uh how many shots there are of tom cruise where he's like weirdly close to the this the camera like it's not it's not a normal like close-up it's a little like just a fraction closer than so typical close-up there's two other interesting things about this that I just want to touch on before we kind of move forward about this, um, especially talking about that. One, there's so many very uncomfortable close-ups of everything in this movie. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that's very kind of tight, uh, t- like for most of it. Um, I was thinking about like the, the the scene in the jazz club, you know, that's not how you film mm-hmm. a concert, mm-hmm. you know, like we usually do the, like the wide shot of the band, maybe a close up of like an individual musician kind of thing. But like we are like up right. close on like, you know, the, the trumpeter's hands. Like yeah. we are moving around like in these these very tight detail shots. I think the most um, distance you get is a shot that has two musicians in it. And that's right. It. But yeah, even that you never feels get the whole... crowded. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like because that's standing in for the full stage band shot. Right. Right. Like and so it, it still feels compressed and um so like and you know one of the one of the things that like digital does have a hard time with um it used to really have a hard time with but by now it's getting better at it. and we can see that to some degree in the the cab shots is depth of field so you can't isolate things out those things look very flat there's like an infinite depth of field for a lot of digital oh. cameras and camcorders at the time um, where everything is just in focus and it's, you can't isolate subjects. So in this sense, we are literally isolating the subjects by just pushing the camera all the way in. Um, so I wish I could see it on, I wish I could see the print that went out to theaters at this time. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't remember in the theater feeling any particular way about like, I thought it looked great, but I don't remember it leaving like that kind of impression on me. What I remember from the Blu-ray and the DVD was like, wow, this movie's defining feature is noisiness. This is a yes. very like very. it is a very artifacted movie. Uh, and that's why I figure I was like, that movie must have just looked that way. And that's what man was going for. And, and maybe it was. But in the 4K transfer, they just did. Like, I felt like I like I felt like I was seeing it for the first time. Like it was huh. like took those glasses off and cleaned them. Like there are still some very grainy shots in there, but it feels drastically reduced from the last Blu-ray release. Totally, yeah. Um, and so I'm like, I I do kind of wonder which transfer was inaccurate. I guess is the is the way I put it, or at least like out of out of whack with what went to print. So there's uh, also a very interesting thing about grain, um, especially in grain with digital video and things like this. Is you know how we all really hated that one episode of Game of Thrones and everyone made fun of it because it was shot in pitch black lighting. And when you stream it on HBO, it became a massive mosaic blobby yeah. mess. Grain actually helps you stop that problem because it breaks up the shadow. Uh. You don't have a pure black field anymore. And so one of the things that like this movie actually kind of holds up better with all the shadows because there's just the shadow isn't perfectly value zero. 
That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I I mean, I, I had thought I was watching. So I watched it on Netflix. I did not watch it on on disc. And it's like it's it's noticeable that you're watching this streaming, but it, I it did hold up better than I thought it would. I was like, huh, this is not. I've watched other shows in the dark, you know, that have lots of, of night scenes that do just look like trash. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked that this one didn't. And that, that explains that. That's yeah, good I was, I was floored by how good it looked on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it's the grain that really kind of keeps the shadows from interesting. getting completely mosaic to hell. I'm curious if anyone's watched like the I'm sure they put the Game of Thrones that episode out on like the, 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 there's the an HDR version of it, of it out there. Yeah, now. I've I've I've, oh. I've heard it looks great and like everyone's okay. like we shouldn't have made fun of this. But but but, but you, well, have, you have to see it on physical media. But that's the thing is like I watched that show on HBO on TV yeah, like yeah. on an HD yeah. channel and it still looked like a can of smashed ass. Well, that stuff like it was like terrible. Shit. Like your cable yeah. box is terrible. Like yeah. it's just the worst. Like well, HBO uh, is like the one channel that actually looks pretty good in HD compared to a lot of other stuff on cable, yeah. and it's just even there it looked terrible. If you're making a thing, you got to account for where people are gonna yeah. see the thing. That's all. Um, but yeah, so we do we do get the well. Now that you destroyed, this is sort of the reveal. Like. Uh, after this nice little exchange, Vincent's like, oh, you thought we were done? That, like, we were called on account of rain? No, 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 no. I do not meet the people I work for. I am not going to have this conversation with my client. You're going to have it for me. You have to go into uh, this nightclub to pretend to be me uh, and get the work up on the remaining targets. And what's so funny is, so he's going to meet Felix. This, uh, like the head of the U.S. version or yes. the U.S. like the U.S. representative of the Cartagena cartel. Right. He yes, he he is like he is like the satrap of the of, of the cartel who oversees uh, either the U.S. or at least the Southwest. But he's a very big deal. And it turns out that like he's the one who like he is staring down the barrel of uh, an indictment and like is trying to wipe out material witnesses to all this. But also Felix uh, apparently does these things himself and so meets with with Max uh, thinking it's Vincent to go through what has happened here. There's no there's no cutouts. It's them sitting uh, at the table. And also 2004. Apparently, it is not notable enough that it's Javier Bardem. It does not come up in the documentary that they made. Like <gasps> Felix is not introduced as like, oh. did an actor play him? Who knows? Who cares? We don't. We don't give a shit. Uh, and now it's like that's Javier Bardem <laughs> and yeah. gives so, the classic like menacing, uh-huh. odd cadence, like a guy who's like reserving half his words as he speaks. Yeah. Uh, you know, man, and just like, five years away from doing a more refined version of Vincent. Uh, yes. Yep. <laughs> like, but also like so. So man does mention him by name on the commentary and does sort of like he does cite the fact he was like, you know, Javier, he came in. He had two weeks of work to do and uh, he did a ton of research and a ton of work to make that character fly. So, you know, like he has nothing but nice things to say about working with Javier Bardem on that for a very small role. Uh, I would but he love does to see him work it. together again. He does. I would love to. Yeah, he does. Yeah. It, it I mean, he's one of those actors. Like he's even when he's in something kind of bad, you know, he's going to at least give you something. Mm-hmm. I think it's also what's kind of funny here is that it turns out Vincent's clients are also shitty and petty. Like, oh yeah, they're like this guy has bosses. I'd he like just to point out deal with them. I'd like to point out the whole thing this movie revolves around the entire plan, the entire point of what is going on here is that Felix waited until the last minute, literally the day before the trial started, 
to be like, oh, fuck, we got to kill these people. Shit. Who do we get in here fast Look, now? He has one night to do this. Uh, now, in some ADHD is yeah. often undiagnosed. <laughs> yeah. Executive disruption's real, trust. trust it me. is. But I mean, look, I understand the idea of a shock and awe campaign where you were just like, you're getting everyone in one shot. But the night before is really cutting it close. Yeah. Maybe as, he thought as, they as, wouldn't all testify the first day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but he does know he does know they all have to go at once because the remainder will get moved into witness security. Mm-hmm. That That mm-hmm. is the thing. That is the like, part that makes sense. They yes. all have yeah. to go in one night before like anyone can realize that these hits are happening. Yes. Um, but yeah, maybe so it just turn- took them this long. You know, he, he's such a big deal about how hard it is to get this material. Maybe they just got it. Two days. Well, that's and that's the point that I mean that's uh, what I tell my editors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Expensive material. You understand this. Yeah. Special Uh projects took months. (laughs) Signal interceptions. Yeah. Voice recognition software surveillance. A very Uh, expensive counterintelligent work up that list. (laughs) So good. And and it all culminates in him and getting a little USB stick with a proprietary loading screen. That like <laughs> the cartel has its own OS it's for so loading Hitman funny. data onto it, it's got a little icon of the USB stick that shows the little ass end of the USB stick filling up a bar with full of like yep. kill kill data. Great, immaculate. Um but also we see Max uh he realizes he's going down in flames. That like they're impatient. They're deeply unimpressed by this guy that they contract to do this job. And so he tries to, he channels, he, he, he tries to channel Vincent. I think the, the thing is, we know that Jamie Foxx can do a better job than this, but Max can't. Right. That he tries to get at what it would be like to be Vincent, but it comes out as Max kind of trying to quote Vincent just to like get through all this. But yeah. he is also, but he does notice the things that sell them on the illusion that they're like, Okay, this guy is at least plausibly a competent, like, killer yeah. of men. You get quiet when you're threatening somebody. You get loud and bug-eyed and head-shaky like Tom Cruise on a talk show when, you know, you're trying to prove a point, and that's it. That's that's all you got to do. Quick aside, what is Mark Ruffalo's Detective Fanning doing in this movie? Okay, so I was waiting for us to finally get to this. To because this. Yeah, Because the cops in this movie are such a side thing that I have to imagine they are literally a vestigial limb of the original script that they just couldn't find a way to completely excise. Yeah. Because it's Mark Ruffalo and it's Peter Berg is his partner who's in like three scenes and does nothing. He doesn't want to be there. Not Peter Berg, the character. Maybe also Peter Berg. I'd just like to say that it took me about like two-thirds of the way for the movie to realize it was Mark Ruffalo yeah. and not Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay, well, I didn't go that far. I was like, oh, did they cast a Ruffalo type for, for this movie? And then eventually I was like, wait, squinting. Did they get Ruffalo for this movie? I kept and watching it and I'm like, oh, look, it's House's friend. But that's the thing, is that like it's not frumpy Ruffalo that we know. No. It's not that disheveled Ruffalo that we know. We're it's three years old. Cool yeah. It's uh-huh. the it's the Mark Ruffalo who saw training day once and decided that's how to dress like a cop. Yes. A hundred percent. Um but it does make me feel that we have been robbed. I just want to use the platform the way we're all we're supposed to, of scruffy detective Ruffalo era. His fucking all this Hulk bullshit. I'm done with it. Give me Columbo, Ruffalo, or shut oh the fuck up. God. He has it. 
He could be he our it. Columbo guy. I felt like this for years. I felt like this since 2007, at least. Uh, One more thing. Th- What's happening? The Drop, I think, is a movie that. Nope. Sorry. Nope. That's. I got John Ortiz also has a similar <laughs> like, later career. Ruffles, Mark Ruffalo. Like, uh-huh. yeah. I was like, isn't Ruffalo the the shabby, like, careworn detective in The Drop? Uh, That's no. not. He it's, could do. He, I, I, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I watched this movie with my partner, uh, and like she, as soon as Mark Ruffalo came up, she was like, is that Mark, is that Mark Ruffalo? And then like her immediate comment was like, what happened to him? Because she thinks he was super cute in this movie. She was super into like young Ruffalo with his he weird fucking three musketeers goatee. Uh-huh. God, it's so funny. He's such a, he is such a mid 2000s cool guy cop caricature. It's. Yes. But also, again, doing almost nothing yeah. in this movie other than being the guy who kind of figures out what's going on, but also it doesn't matter at all. Yeah, we so haven't mentioned is- it, but he just had like five scenes at this point. Yeah. And he's putting the pieces together. He knows these hits are happening. Yeah. Nobody At first, nobody believes him, but then he warns the feds who are already surveilling Felix. Yo, it's all happening tonight. We need to get on this. Also, let's and, not undersell the feds are played by long mainstay of Michael Mann, Bruce McGill, and also Clea Duvall of uh, uh, Millennium oh, fame. That's who that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, hey, that is the Clea only thing Duvall? I know. That's Clea Duvall. I didn't recognize her. Damn. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Not Clea Duvall. Uh, what is, oh, what the fuck is her last name? I think it is Clea, but it's it's the girl from Millennium, this, the third season of Millennium. That is who it is. Yeah, 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 I don't know her name, but I know from Millennium. Clea Scott? Clea Scott, that's it. Yeah, sorry. But Clea Duvall, very different actress. Uh, I guess, like, here is here's my one theory about what is happening in the subplot, yeah. which is that Fanning is putting the pieces together. His boss almost has to be, like, prodded with a pitchfork mm-hmm. to actually, like, do anything with the info. And then when they finally get at the feds, the feds fuck it all up. They're just like, we know what's going on. It's this killer cabbie. And Ruffalo, who has heard the story of the cabbie who went berserk and killed a bunch of people in Oakland. But then the detective was like, somebody else was in that cab. Ruffalo knows something else is going on and people need to look deeper. And so as the feds are like, hey, you guys have done your part, LAPD. Like, we're going to send a tactical team to intercept, uh, you know, this this killer at the next hit. Uh, he follows along and tries to, like, both unravel this thing and <clears throat> and rescue Max, figure out what, what Max is caught up in. Uh, but I do think there is an element of, I think one of, like, the, the dreads that runs through uh, man's movies is that, if you are somebody who is diligent and like turning in the best work you can and like paying attention to not just the things that check the boxes at work, but actually like fulfill what it is you are supposed to be doing, um, you will be let down and sort of cut loose by the people you are depending on uh, and they will fail you and you will be punished for like trying to like adhere to that standard. And that's kind of Fanning's fate. Uh, is is that in the ensuing gunfight, like he's gonna have no backup, and the boss that was like, "I'm going home, I'm going to sleep." That guy lives. That guy lives to fight another day. Fanning should have gone home and gone to sleep. <laughs> that guy lives to go make Deepwater Horizon the movie. <laughs> Before we get to the next shootout, we also get the coyote scene, a scene rich with meaning. So as they are driving to the to the big action set piece of the film, 
as they wait at a stoplight, the two men behold two coyotes darting across the street. Uh, and we get pregnant with meaning. And the music cue strikes up and the brooding opening uh, strains of Shadow on the Sun begin to play, uh, which does complement the moment at first. And then it turns into Bro. an audio slave song as the yeah. guitars just uh, ratchet the music up. In this movie in general, I've been waiting to talk about the score and the music choices. There's one this- music choice I thought I was going to hate that I don't hate that's coming up. But okay. everything else, this. Well, okay. So this is okay. not in the. This is not it. Like we bring back Tangerine Dream. Bring back I, Tangerine Dream, please. Or this is the most he's felt like an old man trying to pick music that's good for the sequence, and it. It's his music tastes has been lapped. I don't know what yeah. you pick instead that comes out in the the mid. Okay, here's the other thing: rock music is in a place. In it 2004, sure right? Yeah, like this is the height of the indie rock boom and also the garage rock boom. So it is a lot of White Stripes, Interpol, like that kind of stuff. And I, I don't think how anyone- man stumbles past White Stripes, though, in all this. I guess. No, that's too. It's that is too much. Right. Care. It intrudes on the scene. It intrudes right. on the scene too much. Yeah. And and here's the thing. I, I am as critical of uh, Michael Mann's audio slave phase as anyone out there i begrudge whoever it was that passed him that cd at some point and like stuck it in rotation in his fucking car but this scene like i remember the scene feeling the scene was kind of lame back in the day watching it this time i think it almost wraps around so hard from lame back to cool I think I can't it almost come here does. With you both. I can't. I'm mad that Dia just left. Them. Dia had to go early today. Yeah. I'm oh, furious. You're just saying Dia would have supported me here. I think Dia would have supported me. Dia would have supported me. No, I, I think, think Dia this would have supported trash. me. There's no way. Dia, let us know in the comments who <laughs> oh, you support. I, like, I, oh, it, I, okay. The thing for me is it's not just this Audio Slave song. And I own this Audio Slave CD at the time. It's okay. It's an okay CD. There may have been a better song on that album to pull than this one. But I think it's going for a particular effect. And I think it's going for a particular effect that the whole score is going for. The score in this film is like weird butt rock with harmonicas and random vocalization. That is, it is, what it is, he's in his dad rock phase. In yeah. a way that's really disappointing. And I I don't know that there's more appropriate music. I don't know that I wanted this whole movie scored with jazz necessarily. No. But I don't it's my one big thumbs down in this movie is the score. And I think that this as like the big one of the two big musical set piece moments. I get it. I I can I can entertain the argument that it wraps back around to being two dudes yeah. in their early forties who are. Uh, but it oh. it's very jarring. I I, I it, it really just shakes you if in a, in a way that like Chris Cornell's voice is basically grabbing yes. you by the shoulders and just being like Arr! you know yeah. like and. I'm kind of with you on the score. There are a few pit like scenes that I think are scored fairly well. The first time Mark Ruffalo appears on screen when he's walking through that apartment building, the track that is playing behind him sounds like a fucking parody of a fucking movie score. It is so bad. Um, But this scene, it's the thing, the thing that makes it wrap around for me 
is that it is this very corny dad rock song and the scene itself is really self-indulgent like in a art a tour filmmaker kind of way of like well one time like on the commentary he talks about how he actually saw coyotes walking around the streets yeah. of LA one time and was like that's that's this deep thing that is this thing about you know reclaiming the space that humanity has encroached upon and he has this thing on where he's talking about like you know this them both seeing this thing at the same time causes them both to retreat inward to start you know like approaching their inner monologue in a way that they weren't in the in the moments prior and it's just like no you shot some coyotes in an audio slave song while some dudes <laughs> look serious like i i i love you oh. but this is but that's the thing is that it none of the pieces fit together at all in such a way that I think it almost wraps around to being kind of brilliant in a weird way. And it is punctuated extra by the fact that it transitions into that goddamn Oakenfold song, which hits so fucking hard as soon hard. as they walk into that club. Unfortunately, that is the song that I think fully works. Yes. At the beginning of that scene, I'm like, oh, my God, are we really going to get this Oakenfold song? Yes. And by the we end are of that scene, rules. I'm like, it was a great choice. Yeah, it is such a great transition. Like and actually, it's maybe, great. Maybe that's how I would rescore this movie is lean more into electronic music. Sure. I, I know there's a hard ask for Michael Mann that I need more like, synths, but I think like, actually too, early 2000s electronic could be a, a direction. Yeah, like the big beat scene had kind of died out at this point, but like Oakenfold was still going strong. There were enough of those people going around. Like, I'm sure he could have called like, you know, the three AD people and be like, who's who do you got right now? Let's 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 get something exactly. on here. Um, uh, it, uh, The thing that I, uh, one note, the thing I think I sort of like and maybe it's like a little too sweet for its own good about the coyotes is the earlier beat on the on talking to the dispatcher or maybe it was, it was the cops it was talking to the cops trying to explain where the broken uh dash came from and the broken the front front windshield um uh and he says oh I hit a I hit a deer uh and they're like in the city and the deer in, in south central and yeah. he's like oh, the south central deer the south central deer so like okay I, I, there's something kind of fun about the idea of like, oh no, wilderness does exist in the city. Like there is not, these are not um, firm, hard lines between the the so-called rural and the urban. Uh, well, the coyote I, is like famously uh, yes, one of yes. the only like wolf-like predators that adapts completely to urban environments and like thrives there. It's all there about adaptation. Yeah, oh, it's all about improvisation. Yeah. Here they are. Right. So, and so, and, and so, yeah, the two animals could uh, be a metaphor for both of them, right? They they both mm -hmm. like see themselves in this. Oh, he but, definitely thinks yeah. that's what they are. A hundred percent. It's just it's just a little like it's just a little too sweet. It's just a little too on the nose. Yeah. To really hit. But it kind of hits. I it's still a striking image. I think I mean, it hits. I mean, it here's is. the problem. It's also there's something inherently affecting about a wild animal and all their vulnerability in like the streets of a major city the lights hit their eyes yeah and like i mean it's like and the shots of la are great oh yeah seeing all the all the businesses seeing the palm trees as dia was saying before blowing in the wind at night like the the long camera shots over streets that are that are emptying out the the slow motion shot of the bacardi silver ad <laughs> mm -hmm. i want to know what i want to know how much money exchanged hands i really do I mean, um, probably the same amount of money that exchanged hands when they came back around for Miami Vice. Right? They, they yeah. sure did too. If, yeah. if memory serves, there is some heavy-handed Bacardi promo. Oh, there super there. is. It's like 
Uh, the best everyone knows the best mojitos are made in Cuba. Listen, it's and the, everyone it's, knows the best <laughs> the best Cubano. Mark. It's like a nineteen fifties radio <laughs> yeah. ad, man. The it's the legal vice, you know. Yep. So, uh, um, but then, so yes, we get to the club to fever. Oh, to fever. Yes, and it is like kind of the like. It's kind of the opposite of the alley scene because it's like it's still gonna be a lot of a fish and killing, but like it is going to be just absolute mayhem, and we're gonna see Vincent just fully turned loose. This K Town uh, nightclub does not know what's about to hit it. I do like that you get two very different Me kinds too. of ethnic subgroup clubs in this one because the Latin American club is you know it's it's I mean it's it's popping off, but at the same time like it's the crowd there is strained. The crowd there, everyone's like, you know, just kind of walking around, hanging out, listening to music. They would definitely not be playing Calexico in that club. I'm telling you right now, no. that is the white guy thing to do. Not the th- not you. Would, there would be some dude in there singing an actual goddamn narco corrido in there uh, mm-hmm. if you were in that real club. But then you get to this K Town club, and it is just everyone is jumping off. It is a 900 person club where everyone is just losing it to Oakenfold. And an edit of Oakenfold, I might add that changes the words of ready, set, steady, go to be in Korean. <gasps> that is a detail man drops on the commentary. I it's love like, it. well, you know what? You go into these clubs, they wouldn't be listening to the MTV stuff. They'd be listening to Korean music. And so I was like, well, I really <laughs> want to use the song. So what if we changed the lyrics to be in Korean? Oh, legend. Absolute and he did it. Legend. And he did it. <laughs> This club scene rules. It's so good. It is my it's so good. My favorite thing in movies. I am saying this. I'm planting yeah. the stake right here. Uh-huh. My favorite thing in movies is any scene in any movie where a killer <laughs> is slowly moving through a crowd of dancers in a in a popping off nightclub, uh-huh. either while a cop is stalking them. Or another killer is stalking them. Someone is stalking them. And the longer it goes on and the louder the music is, Uh the more I like it. I have seen the replacement killers Uh dozens of times (laughs) only because it has that. This is you're Blade. Saying, like, this, this sequence, there should be like God. a t-shirt cannon with Oscars. Yes. Just <laughs> yes. firing at the cast and Paul crew. Oakenfold should have an Oscar for this. <laughs> Everyone involved. The hairdresser. Well, again, the choreographer. So much of John Wick is just like, what if the whole movie was yes, Vincent yes. doing and awesome shit? That's why I shit. love John Wick. Yes, yeah, it's like this is this is the this is the father Bro, of the bathhouse shootout. Oh my god, yes. dude! Tom yes. Cruise is a nightmare in this scene. The way he just moves through people and just collapses them. I didn't and know you could kill a guy that way. He breaks his neck from the back, like he breaks it vertically from the chin from yes. behind him. So I understand that maybe you actually more as I understand it maybe actually more efficient because the thing is you use the body weight to like sever the whole. I court. believe you, but and that's then, not and what that's Hollywood shows horrible you. to no. see, right? It's and that, and I think that's the that's that is the other difference I think between some like what man does and like what later imitators do. People are inspired by him, but the thing is like man wants also is like he's like this is cool, right? But it's also queasy. It's queasy. And like those two things, like when we see him, because he's first he's going around making a circuit, disabling all the guards. And there's the guy he steps up to and, hey, I had an ACL repair uh, once upon a time. So guess what my phobia is? Uh, massive lower leg trauma. Um, when well, he steps up to that dude and kicks the side of his leg in and just 
collapses crumples the entire leg oh my god nightmare i i've never had a knee injury in my life and watching that was like the most uncomfortable piece of single violence anywhere in this movie it just made me want to crawl up into a ball and just like no one should ever touch me i love it it's um it has the tension you know where it's going there's a there's a <laughs> sorry something was developing in the background if we went a little yes. quiet it's <laughs> <laughs> okay, because Dia is weighing in from afar on the audio Fuck. slave. We Fuck finally have an answer. <laughs> yes, yes, I knew it. Yes, all right. I seven minutes ago, eight minutes ago, I said, Dia, what do you feel about the audio slave scene? And she said, I think the use of the coyote is really interesting because it's such an LA staple. And I said, Okay, but what about the audio slave? And Rob said, She likes it, Austin. And Dia said, It's bad. And Rob damn. said, Damn. And Dia said, it's embarrassing, but that works for me, because this is a 6.5 out of 10 Xbox game <laughs> that someone had more licensed music budget than original assets. Oh, this. Yeah, no, she's 100 percent right. This is a true crime fucking yes, Streets of L.A. level is. soundtrack. God, it 100 uh, is. Uh, but the, <sighs> the other thing that's, that's cool here, too, is there's so much chaos in this nightclub scene because you have. You have the guards, uh, like trying to protect the witness. Mm-hmm. Yes. You have Felix sent dudes to be like, if any of this goes wrong, we're just writing off the entire night and, and just kill, kill, kill Vincent, everyone, kill, kill everybody, like, kill yeah, Vincent, wipe everyone out. Who they kill Max also, and yeah. the feds think Max is Vincent, so they're tailing him. Yes. right. And so and the again, feds I- are trying to get in there, but also. The feds have gotten to talk to the witness's wife, but the witness does not know they're showing up. Right. And so the guards do not expect a tactical team uh, in plain clothes to be showing up with like ARs. Yes. So and man cool. is very specific about this uh, in the commentary is like this. This guy would have two rings of guards. He would have a bunch of bodyguards that are like right up there with him. And then he would have a bunch of like regular security kind of floating throughout the room, which is what, you know, like Vincent is taking out. And in his mind, he was like, well, the people who are surrounding uh, this Peter Lim guy who is the gangster, they don't speak English. They're all just they're 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 purely Korean and they don't they don't speak English. So when the you know, the, the FBI team shows up uh, holding guns, they can't understand what they're saying on top of the fact that they don't know what's going on. So, of course, they assume it's an assault and they're they're you know they're about to kill. And I think we answered the question here of why is Mark Ruffalo in this movie? Why are these cops here? Their entire reason for existence is to stir up the hornets nest enough to create this scene. Mm-hmm. Like, to get all these diff- disparate parties into the same room. It's the only reason you can't get rid of those characters, because otherwise, they are completely not vital to what is going on in the story. And and they do, they, they do eat shit immediately, because they come in trying to scream for uh, Peter Lim to just, like, come with them. They're, they're, they're to rescue him. But the guards see dudes with guns, don't respond to the put down your guns, open fire. And the feds basically just get driven off. They're routed immediately. Yeah. They get uh, fucked up. Yeah. Their boss gets like nailed in the leg and their entire thing. That was like, how do we get out of here with our lives? And meanwhile, Vincent now has to kill an entire room full of guards. <laughs> and we already seen him like disable a bunch of the guards during his stealthy approach. But this is the like, how quickly can he clear a room with a pistol? Yeah. Uh, and we see him do various uh, calisthenic uh, maneuvers to, like, you know, move smoothly from one position to the next and a- engage, acquire 
uh, kill one target after another. It's incredible. It is so good. Like the editing is fantastic. Like the 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 economy of action is really good. Both like just in the way that Vincent like just dismantles everyone. But also like the little bits of diversions that they throw in there, like the part where like, you know, at one point Max is about to get murked and, you know, for a brief second, Vincent notices this, kills the guy that was going to kill him and some of the other guys that were targeting him and then gives him this look of like pure annoyance of like, will you just fucking get down and get out of here? Because you're just you're getting again, you're interfering with the work. But he also saves him. He could have let him get shot. He does. He could have let him get shot. Yeah, but he needs him. Does he again? He doesn't though. He doesn't in more ways than one. Rob, he needs him here. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, inside he needs him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You complete me. Yes, a hundred percent. So, and then in the middle of this, Fanning shows up and gives Max like the rope ladder. Briefly appears. Like I'm Detective Ray Fanning. I'm getting you out of here. Max is like, I'm down. I didn't do it. I'm not. I'm not the killer. It's this other guy. And Fanning's like, I know. I know. Let's just get you safe. And and this is the one thing where they do the somehow Vincent has warped to a different position because I cannot fathom how he is already outside of the club back by the cab. He's a professional, Rob. By the time Vincent and Fa- uh, Max and Fanning come down the stairs. It's not at all. It's 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 he's perfectly poised to kill them in the doorway to kill yes. Fanning in the doorway. He doesn't even get all the way outside. He's had time to set up. I don't know. You know, but maybe, I, maybe there was something lost in the cut here. You know, I, I will say that the like my partner is not often like surprised at movies and often uh, tends to find them pretty predictable. In a lot of cases, she did not see the Mark Ruffalo killing coming. She did not see it coming at all and was just like totally gobsmacked when that happened. It's very jarring. It's very jarring. It is, like you feel like this something's going to pay off here. Right. And- you think like, oh, OK, this is going to now become. Vincent's gonna have to chase down Fanning and and uh, Ruffle or Fanning and and Max rather, uh, and that's gonna turn into a chase scene, and then there's gonna be something else. No, nope. Ruffalo's Not out of this all. movie, and part of it is like this whole movie. Max has been hoping someone would show up and like take care of this problem. Yep, right. And this is the last like that bit of hope is blown away, and the only way like, what are you going to do, Max? Is the essential problem that this sets up and things come to a head as they drive away um their relationship boils over right and we get a scene that um i think we'll just splice in the audio from this from this clip um but like the two finally they're so fed up with each other that they finally give the unvarnished like here is what i actually think of you uh Mm -hmm. speech um sorry that's not the right the right clip uh fuck where is it are you sure because it says right here it's collateral best scene hd and i mean no, if no, this no, is no. the best scene hd it must be the right one <laughs> no it's this one it's this one uh how do i are you uh, sure this is the scene this might be the scene no it's this is the longer cut though oh okay 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 uh this is rob you like the same scene well that's the that, that's my that's my Wait, where's the fucking four minute version? This is the four minute version. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah four it and a half minutes. Okay. Yeah. okay, great. This is it. All right. Yeah, good. Cool. It's the best scene in HD. Uh, so, we, yeah, we, uh, the, where I wanted to start was like about 45 seconds in. Okay. Uh, are you going to count us in? Are we just going to listen together? Is that what we're doing? What do we do? We can listen together, but like, I think the, the main thing is like, I remember the, the audience will hear it. Yeah, I remember yes. it pretty well too. Okay. So, we can just like 
All right, we'll play the clip and then we'll discuss it. Okay. What's with you? As in? As in, if somebody had a gun to your head and said, you got to tell me what's going on with this person over here or I'm going to kill you. What is driving him? What was he thinking? You know, you couldn't do it, could you? Because they would have to kill your ass because you don't know what anyone else is thinking. I think you're low, my brother. Way low. Like, what were you? One of those institutionalized raised guys? Anybody home? And stand and the standard parts that are supposed to be there and people in you aren't. Why did you kill me? Well, Gabby's not letting I get back. Sigmund Freud is Dr. Ruth. Answer the question. Look in the mirror. Your paper towels, clean cab, the low company someday. How much you got saved? I didn't have no business. Someday, someday my dream will come. One night you'll wake up and you'll discover it never happened. It's all turned around on you. It never will. Suddenly you are old. It didn't happen. And it never will because you were never going to do it anyway. You're pushing in a memory that zone out in your barco lounger, being hypnotized by daytime TV for the rest of your life. So don't you talk to me about murder. And all it ever took was a down payment on a Lincoln Town car for that girl you can't even call that girl. What the fuck are you still doing driving a cab? So the two finally just give their armchair psychologist reads on each other, and both are are really brutal about what they see in the other. Uh, Like it finally boils over Vincent. Oh, I'm full of shit. You're full of shit. And the crushing of not, not just the crushing of of max's dream but also the you realize you're never going to chase that dream right yeah like you're never going to do it and that and that is like i have at very like for years the line what the fuck are you still doing driving a cab haunted me because there were so many times where i felt like if a vincent walked into your life mm-hmm. they would draw this conclusion of like you fucking loser what are you doing and how is this you have, your life? And you have your reasons. You have your reasons, but also on some deep level, you feel like, did I just like build this little prison for myself? And mm-hmm. I just never, I, I, I didn't do the things I needed to do to get out of it. And Max is also hitting the mark, though, as he just is like, you were an institutionally raised, uh, like government issue, like killer. Like you were, you, you were maladapted as a kid. And then you professionalize that. And like the thing he says about with a gun near head, you could not tell what is going on with somebody else, what animates them, what they're thinking is painful because in some ways I think Vincent prides himself on his ability to read and like relate to people. But like Max is dead on. There is just a like beyond that, like shallow, superficial, superficial ability to like read and predict there's complete incomprehension of other yes. people's inner lives or that like other people are people. Totally. It's, yeah. It is a complete teardown of both these characters. And I think it comes at the exact right moment here 
not just because of where it is in the script, but just because like it it feels like a natural extension of everything that has come before. Like it feels like the build to this is completely genuine. And, you know, it when when Max has his freak out here, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It feels like this is I understand exactly why he starts acting this way and why he's like, you know what? I'm just going to start driving at 90 miles an hour down these L.A. streets. I'm going to fucking steer this car into an embankment and crash it because, yeah, like he has been driven to this point And these people have completely worn each other down to this degree that it doesn't just feel like a plot moment. It feels like a genuine character development. Yeah, it's 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 so good, too, because the language each of them knows to zero in on the other is so caught with the way that they prize their own abilities, right? The right. thing that Max targets is you don't know how to read anybody because Max is the guy who can see someone sit down in the back of his car and say, you're a lawyer, you're not in marketing. He reads right. people super well, right? Uh, and the stuff that that Vincent hits on in terms of you're not driven to go do the thing. It's like, I do the thing. It's all I do. All I do is the job. Uh, you pretend like you want to do the job. You can't do the job. We not you not you spent twelve years in a cab. I spent twelve years killing people for Uncle Sam or whatever. Now I kill people for me. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that is like that's the only language each of them knows about the world uh, is their own per- personal skill set. I mean, and and I I'm curious to what degree either of you thinks. Again, this comes out of the heart of the story. Is like. What role is being fulfilled for Vincent by Max? The beginning of this conversation is Max being like, fuck off. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk to you at this point. Like, what do you – and that's where where Vincent ends up doing the thing where he's like, come on. Like, we're cosmically connected. (laughs) Fate's intertwined. He specifically says – you know, he says uh, – Max says like, why would you – why didn't you just hire another driver? It went bad. Why didn't you just hire another driver? And he goes, because you're good. You're good. We're good together, which is such a funny line. Which is but both I think like, go ahead. It's, it's like, it's both like, you know, it feels like one of the few things that is like comes from a genuine emotional place from Vincent, but is also just about the most pathetic thing it's, he could have said in that moment, because it, it, it really, he has nothing. Really, he has no one. Yeah, he has nothing to hold on to other than, I like you. I yep. think you're good at what you do. Like, why oh don't God. you understand this? This is all a Cable Guy remake. You're You're like 50% right, I it's think. It's a similar yeah. relationship. I don't but think yeah, Vincent uh, is as obsessive, but it's no, close. But it is like, it, it is the, like... Okay, now I'm imagining Jim Carrey as Vincent, and that that is a very funny image in my it's mind. It's very funny. But, like, yeah, it is the... I, like, it, it's, it's a theme about, like, the loneliness of, like, modern men that, like, yes. man revisits again and again, but also the loneliness of, like, giving a damn about what it is you do. It's funny because they both worked in non-living color. They had experience together. Yes, uh, they Jamie did. Jamie Foxx and Jim Carrey could have done it. They would have... Anyway, sorry. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, like it is it is, and that's the thing. Like the rest of this movie is like Vincent becoming more and more pathetic. Yeah, mm-hmm. because like what he's trying to get at is like me heart you, I care about you. Like, don't you see that? Like, like I'm almost are, thinking we, about not killing you. That's how much in, I like you. 
we are kindred spirits. And I think that's the, that's the other part of it is like, especially for someone like Vincent, uh, you know, we talk sometimes on like a more civilized age about like how frustrating it must be to be like Palpatine and all this, the master plotter and mm-hmm. un, un, nobody able to see your work. Mm-hmm. Vincent in Max doesn't just find someone who can like ferry him around and like keep up this little like game he does of like nobody ever even knows that there was a hitman here. With Max, he find, he thinks he's found someone who's like, you understand the attention to detail. You understand like caring about your work in this way. And like so few people do. It's just the fact his work is morally reprehensible right. and disgusting. <laughs> and that's the part where he, he doesn't see all he sees is like, but work is work. Like the yeah. ethos is the ethos. And it's like, that's that's not complete. That's not that's not life. Um, but boy, does he does he work? Does he does he get Max to come out of his shell? Does he teach him how to improvise when Max pulls his big stunt? Is it not exactly the thing that he that Vincent would be proud of him for figuring out how to do? And, and I think in everything any other circumstance, follows? he would have been like, totally. There, there's a lot. There's a lot of um, Roy and Deckard uh fighting in mm-hmm. this last sequence where it's like that's the spirit yeah there 100%. is a lot of i have been wanting to see this from you this entire fucking night because it kills me that you're like living the, your life the way you do yes the other thing is we do get some we do get some critical very <laughs> max blurts out some additional exposition backstory <laughs> as he floors it I gambled a lot, but that's just a one-way ticket, born a born to lose, one-way ticket. I don't know. Listen, I had the money. I lost it. I'm way behind now. Got to flip this cab. Uh, uh, It it does sort of penetrate Tom Cruise. He's lost control of the situation. Uh, They flip the cab. And and here's the thing. This scene between them, this argument they have is so good. And you're like, man, this is what Collateral is an all-timer. I fucking love this movie. And then regrettably, it has to be an action movie that finishes. Right. And so we get, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad finish. I think there's parts in this next week sequence I really like. But I think to that point about like, this is a stage play. And why is it so special? It is a stage play. Yeah. Here at the end, action movie. It's an action movie. And I will say what my prevailing memory from when I saw it was thinking the last 20 minutes were the weakest part of it. And like just feeling like it all got a little predictable. It all got a little too neatly tied up with the fact that, yes, Jada Pinkett Smith's character is the last target. Of course she is. How can she not be? And all that stuff. She's a prosecutor. Of course, she's tied to the case. Of course, it's all ties together. There's stuff here that stands out for me. Yeah. That I think is still sharp. The like pseudo rear window bit. Uh, yeah. So he yes. crashes. The, he crashes the, the cab on purpose up against a barrier to flip it. Uh, it doesn't save the day, but it does. It does give them. Uh, it does slow things down. Uh, Vincent sneaks out of the broken cab uh, and and begins to pursue the target. Jamie Fox uh, Max almost gets arrested because a cop shows up uh, to be like, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And then finds the tr- the dead body in the trunk. <laughs> yes, which is a great beat. Uh, begins to arrest Max. Max sees Vincent's lost gun, grabs it, turns it around on the cop. After flipping him, after flipping mm-hmm. him, he pulls his. He goes yeah. into Vincent mode again. He pulls that, that out yep. of him. That cop seemed very flippable, to be fair. That was an extremely like that is the guy one of the guys that like current Steven Seagal flips every time he does yes. an Aikido demonstration. It's true. It's true. 
Um, uh, and then we get the chase. We get Max beginning to try to pursue Vincent. Vincent going to the L.A. whatever the structure. I don't know if this is the the federal the, building. The, the federal say. building. Okay. Yeah. I mean, all this this like this whole section basically felt to me like it was taking place at night during E3 because it's just that part of L.A. It is that part of L.A. It really yeah. is. The crashes in front of the Staples right. Center. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It, it totally it like literally you is, see right? like the three like the three buildings that have like the giant built like billboards on them. Yeah. 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 The GTA ads go there. Um, the it's football though instead, right? It's the Chargers. Mm-hmm. Is that who it is? Up I there. believe it. Is. Well, it could. Mm. Well, what? It could have been. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that could have been a Madden video game ad. Oh, it really could have been a Madden because video the Chargers game were in ad. LA at this point. They were still in San Diego. You're right. There was no LA team at this time. Huh. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. So. <laughs> no, I'm curious. Also, uh, the bit that I really do like is Jamie Fox up on the Jamie Fox steals a cell phone from somebody. It's dying, but he's calling uh, uh, Annie, Jada Pinkett Smith, to be like, oh, my God, you got to get out of there. There's a killer coming. Listen to me. And he's looking up at the building where the lights are on on the 15th, 14th, 15th, and 16th floors of the, of the building, the federal building, and seeing her move back and forth. That's actually not what I love the most. Like, he's able to see Tom Cruise goes to the wrong floor at first. He's at floor 14 or 15, but she's on 16. That stuff's fine. There are shots of him on the the rooftop of the parking lot the or parking whatever garage. that he's that he's yeah, the parking garage that he's calling from that are like those like flip the situation and he seems so far away and incapable of helping as Tom Cruise moves through these these rooms and there's Jamie Foxx out on the rooftop impossible for him to help and that shot like super works for me yes um, i like this part a lot that part I- still still hits for me I love the bait and switch of the POV of Vincent locating her office in mm-hmm. person and she's not there. Yeah. And that's when it's revealed her office is on a different floor. She's in the library. Yes. Uh, and just yes. a little attention to detail, detail like, and this is the shit, sort of shit that I think man cares about. Uh, well, of course, they would properly label where where all the phone lines are active on the uh, inner office, like the, the inner office phone uh, th- that they've got. And so he sees that one line is open. Uh, and immediately knows where she is and then decides to just turn into a movie killer mm-hmm. because he he's like yeah. not i should hurry over there and kill the target i should grab this fire axe and knock out the entire power conduit to this uh to this office well i think that his reasoning is that he doesn't want her calling out for police like yeah. he, it, it, there's always it cuts a off a call yeah, and with Max out there, there's always the chance that he could, you know, like somehow come in and crash through this and let her know what's going on. It's a little bit of a leap, but I, I kind of understand the logic. But yes, the way he just starts stalking through there like he's goddamn Jason Voorhees is a he's, little he's much. backlit and projected much. against yeah. the frosted glass, uh, but it's also kind of cool. Uh, and then, of course, because he's now continuing to try to offer Max some therapy and like prod him into like defining himself through action when max finally does burst in and like uh you know points his gun at vincent is like don't do it and his reaction of max and then funny what are you gonna do about it basically asking what are you gonna do shoot me yeah yeah 
Like, please, and tell this, me, please. The, show uh, me you are now, uh, like, What are you going to do, blessing. stab me, says man who was stabbed? <laughs> Seconds later, like, instantly. The distance yes. of time between him saying, what are you going to do, shoot me, and getting shot in the face is nothing. It's no time at all. It rules. It's like, the rhythm on it is, it's like syncopated. Like, it, we don't yes. get to the next beat. You know what I mean? It's too early. Mm-hmm. And it it's, again, small things throughout the sequence still make it solid for me, even yes. though it is uncharacteristic of these characters. I'm a sucker for uh, suspenseful, like, cat and mouse on a train platform, yep. which is Vincent trying to read which way did they which go. Which way did they go? Uh, which way did they go? Yeah. Uh-huh. The bit, it's it cracks me up because it is, again, such a, such a touch when it looks like they've gotten away. But then it turns out he is hopped onto the back and it's like Wiley Coyote pasted on the back of the subway car mm-hmm. uh, as they're riding away. Uh, and we get the sort of cat and mouse uh, across various stops as they are trying to give away their possession. But he, he knows they're there and he's sort of stalking forward. Little details in the background. He steps out of the train and holds the gun trained down the platform. Other people do see it and like go running. And it just doesn't matter. It doesn't like, right. Like it just. Yeah. The Nobody train will take off before anyone has a chance to call the cops and do anything about it. Yep. Uh, oh, you might be thinking, didn't Austin say he got shot in the face? Yeah, 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 he did. He's bleeding from the face. It didn't kill him. He got winged or it went through his mouth or something weird. He didn't. But he's bleeding throughout the rest of covered his. Covered in blood. Covered in blood. Yeah. His ear looks like it got pretty fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we get we get the final, like, him charging through the train yeah. as he's got them cornered. And we get... Me- <laughs> Hey, what's this movie about? What are what are some of man's themes? Uh, how can we how can we draw meaning from this? Max, I do this for a living. It's so good. It's it's perfect. It's the perfect line from a, a Michael Mann character. They're they're you know they're facing each other from one train car to another. Right, the train car uh, it divides them into like this is. This is all just like 101 visual filmmaking stuff. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? One yes. was on the right side, one's on the left. The lights cut out. They start shooting. Uh, you don't. You can't see who won the gunfight. And then you know he he walks forward. Does he come into the? No, he he just sits. He's down. gonna do. He's gonna do a reload, and he realizes as he yes. goes for the extra mag, he's hit bad. He's hit bad. Drops he drops the mag. He can't hold the mag. And he just slumps against the the uh, one of the chairs, subway seat. Yeah, the subway. And seat. you get the sense he could still he could still win this. He, he could. could still reload and kill. It just he realizes it's done. It's done. And he sits. What do down. I get from this? And and Max and think, goes into his train. And I think this is like Fox's best scene in the movie because like th- like for me like. This is everything is subtlety, and he acts the shit out of it. Yeah, yeah he does. He sits down across from Vincent, and I love this. Not like what a good sc- screen screenplay thing too. He sits down and he offers. We're almost at the next stop, and it's like, bro, why would you say that? But of course, like, there's also like, we're going to leave you here. Like, it's him saying goodbye, but also yeah. like, not knowing what to say, and then so. Vincent repeats that story now realizing that he is the man who rides the MTA. Uh, you know, he has, he says, you know, Max guy dies on, uh, on the MTA. How long before, how long you think before anybody notices? And the fact that like Vincent's fear is coming true here, yep. that like he will die alone and anonymously. 
And it's like he was never there. What does he leave behind? But he isn't alone, right? This is the service that Max is giving him in this moment. He could have stayed in the other car. But he yep. goes over and he sits with him as he fucking dies. While Jada's Pinkett Smith is looking very terrified and confused. Yes. And like, but there is this like very quiet kind of just like, like there's an empathy there, you know, like in yep. his face and in the look he gives him yep. as, and as Cruz just straight up fucking, it's like someone unplugged him from the matrix. Yes. Like he just slumps <laughs> he over just, and it's over. Yep. Also the detail from the, the, the feature at that, First of all, they green screened all the stuff that's passing by the train uh, and all this because he wanted to control. It doesn't look good. It looks bad, especially in 4K. It looks awful. Yeah, Uh, and I don't. I don't remember the sequence ever looking awful. Now it does. Now it does. It looks bad. But he calls out. (laughs) He also wanted when this when the sequence happens, he wanted to pass through into a darkened version, like a darkened part of LA, one emptier tracks, but also. He wanted this this darkened tree to uh, sort of come out of <laughs> Vincent as he dies uh, again, like, you know, a, a bit like the lights in mm-hmm. uh, heat, you know, the, the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the part that like makes the scene for me is as he dies. Max looks so incredibly conflicted. He yeah. looks sad, but confused and then also angry that he's even confused. Right. Because. Vincent was his tormentor. Vincent was his monster. Why does he it's I think it's kind of a mirror for like, why does Vincent feel bad when he kills Daniel? I think for Max, there's this there's this bit of like, why should I feel why should I feel this way about this guy? This fucking guy who's ruined my who almost got me killed many times, who was just trying to kill me as far as I can tell and was is an evil person. Does evil in the world for evil. He can talk a big game, but like he isn't he isn't killing drug dealers, quote unquote. You know what I mean? He isn't he's not yeah, Omar. He's from not the killing wire. them because they're drug dealers. No, he's killing them because he's killing these people because they're about to snitch on yeah. the head of a cartel. By the guy who's paying regional him. head. Right, exactly. So and, but that's the thing, is that then then that's ultimately the conflict, right? Is that he also recognizes that yes. like he never would have been able to save Annie. Without the goading and the sort of like, you know, the the push that Vincent gave him, he wouldn't like course, yeah. he would have continued yeah. to be a very anonymous, quiet, unassuming person and never would have experienced anything like an epiphany had this fucking psychopath not jam like jabbed him and into like action. And, you know, it's uh, like it's it's. It's all a little heavy handed, but at the same time, it's acted extremely well. That's the thing is that like the moment works because Jamie Foxx makes it read without having to just state it. And it works. Mm -hmm. I I really just think a worse movie ends with, you know, him looking through and seeing Vincent fall to his knees and dying and then him like grabbing, you know, Annie by the waist and being like, what a night. You know, or like, you know, drive me home. Just another night in L.A. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think letting them like share this moment and sit with the map of the, of the, of the subway. I mean, obviously it's like the map of the subway is there, but that's a shot shot for like, look, like here are the only, there's a movie about driving around 
and then you're on a rail, right? At some point, yes. you get stuck and you're going in one direction. All you can do is get on or off the stops. And let me tell you about the LA Metro. It doesn't go everywhere, everywhere. It's not getting you a lot of places. Especially not in 2004. It well, it's very funny seeing that menu, that, yes, that right. map now because it is so much bigger now. Hey, shout outs to LA. Yeah. Uh, more, more useful light rail. Yeah. Uh, but it is so funny looking at that map. It's, and I'm like, that doesn't go anywhere. Doesn't go anywhere, yeah. dude. Well, it's that it's it's that shot, and then the one that comes after after they get off the stop. Yeah. And like I feel like anyone who has been in L.A. for any length of time has had a moment where they ended up in a part of L.A. like early morning hours, where you're just like there are some like itinerant workers and you know a handful of cars kind of dri- driving around, but you are in nothing. There is nothing around but auto parts sh- shops <laughs> and other things, and you're just trying to get a beat on where the hell you mm-hmm. even are. And it is a great little L.A. moment that they insert in there while the train kind of rides off into the sunrise. Yeah, it's good. I I also do just love this detail that uh, Jamie Foxx mentions that, like, Michael Mann has such an inventory of, like, shooting locations in his head. <laughs> Jamie Foxx mentions in that featurette that, like, he's like... I thought I knew like the ghetto in LA and everything. And Michael Mann is like, you don't know shit. Let me, let me show you some places. And apparently he showed Jamie Foxx some real places, which apparently the issue with Miami Vice, he showed Jamie Foxx maybe too many places. Ah, uh, I see. And some, some stuff happened. Ah. And Jamie Foxx was like, I would like to get off this train now. You've taken me to uh, too many real places. Yeah. Things may have gotten a little too real mm-hmm. uh, in some of those places. But okay. yeah. Uh, Speaking of the line between reality and, and unreality, I found the team on the on the uh, billboard or on the, the Oh, did you? Yeah, it's the Cougars. You know, the Cougars? The Cougars from the hit <laughs> ESPN drama series Playmakers. Wait, oh, what? my uh, wait, God. What? what? Uh-huh. It's, oh my god it is, it is an ad for the 20 or from the 2003 uh uh drama series uh playmakers that ran on espn from august 26th to november 11th 2003 i had completely memory hold that show uh-huh. uh which i watched all of which there wasn't a lot of because omar it, it gooding's uh playmakers mm-hmm. it was a pretty okay trashy show that uh as i recall the nfl really did not like mm-hmm. really sounds like it really, really ended did not on a, like and it sounds like it ended on a cliffhanger uh well no sorry it almost ended on a cliffhanger but episode 10 leon tries proving still play when he learns that will banks will not renew his contract dh's older brother uh okay thank god oh thank god it's snoop it's not they had his brother named Snoop Doggy Dog. No. It is Snoop. Snoop. It is Snoop. Okay. Yes. I was, yes. I was yes. like, we're just going to uh-huh. have a character no. using Snoop's old name. If I remember, the show is also biting hard from any given Sunday. So there's another oh, a lot. Jamie Foxx connection, obviously. Well, that's a great fucking movie. It was, like, it was like halfway between any given Sunday and a little bit of The Shield. Because they were trying right. to really Boy, show the show. dark underbelly of right. football. But like... Not in a particularly nuanced or You're good selling way. me. I'm yeah. sorry. Any given it's a Sunday weird show, but I, it's very watchable from what I remember. The Oliver Stone, the sequel series to to the Michael Mann series. Is that what y'all y'all are doing next? <laughs> I do not think. I do <laughs> not think the. Uh, I do not think the oeuvre uh, holds up as. Oh, By the they, time we get to World Trade Center, we're just going to be begging <laughs> for mercy. You know, there's someone out there who who disagrees with you, who is like. Oliver Stone is 20 times the filmmaker that Michael Mann is. Yeah, that person is Oliver Stone. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. I but I just I love the shit out of this movie, and I wasn't sure I would as much this time, like having come off yeah, the insider it. and everything. Yeah. And here, I just I love like how on the nose it is about like what it takes to be good at a job, and I think the the sort of like ecumenical belief of coolness that man has that like being cool at a job and giving a shit about it being good at a job and giving shit about it is inherently cool and demands a lot of dignity and respect and people do not get it and i think that's the other that's the other thing like running through this is like max is saved from faith that always a lot of diligent and good people uh in this world which is that like with basically with a gun to his head he is forced to not only like break out of his life but also is like given the opportunity to distinguish himself in a way that like he he does heroic shit he performs feats of valor for the u.s attorney but that's the only way you can do it in this world yes right yes the only way to break out is to break out in this ridiculous way being good at your job which should absolutely give you a life of comfort and ease where you can take care of your family and feel proud about what you did. He doesn't get to be proud. That's the thing, right? Max is the best at what he does, but the world says what you do is shit. And so you don't get to be proud about that. Yeah. Yeah. It sees no value in it. No. And in fact, the guy with the headset, who's the dispatcher and owner of the company is to ride you down anytime he wants. And you got to lie to your parents about what you do. Uh, because you, you're ashamed of the truth, even though, uh, yeah, Vincent gets in the cab and immediately realizes this guy is the shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. um, I, I just, yeah, I was just say I, one last bit of detail here that I, I kept meaning to find a way to bring up. Uh, someone tweeted this at me. I don't know if this is 100 percent true or not, but I want to believe it's true. One piece of possible alternate casting for this movie for the role of Max before Jamie Foxx took the role. Adam Sandler. That was apparently something that was at least in consideration. Oh, my God. Can you imagine Adam Sandler in that role? This is the era, right? What's the... Is this yeah, this would have been Punch Drunk Punch Love Drunk? era. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it's right in there, right? Punch Drunk Here, was 2003. Yeah. Here's why I don't believe it. Because man is taking all his favorite people from Ollie over to the next right. movie. And that's like... that. He, he like... Some, some, like, character actors enter his, like, stable of mm-hmm. players and then there's a star too he's like i think we work together and that means they get two pictures with him before <laughs> before they blow the fuck up yeah uh, uh but they, they were had in, enough they were in talks along with instead of cruise for vincent russell crow i it's a worse movie russell crow adam sandler worse movie. it's an interesting that, idea that's, that's some that is some vhs blockbuster like <laughs> mwah, mwah. can you believe that I russell crow and uh, it's <sighs> coming off of the insider right so yeah here's the, here's the thing though i can see a vision of this like uncut gems adam sandler i think like you can do something interesting in this vein but i don't think even punch drunk sandler dropped sandler out do you know why oh why scheduling conflicts? He with, was going to do it with, with what? Spanglish. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I gotta, the Jesus falling out of the chair. Gift. Oh my god! Is this the best thing to come out of Spanglish? <laughs> Did James L. Brooks inadvertently oh, rescue this movie? It's unbelievable. It's so funny.
Oh my god. You know, there's always been a rumor that Michael Mann directed You Don't Mess with the Zohan. <laughs> <laughs> it's his poltergeist. Oh my god. <laughs> oh. oh my god. I I need to die now. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's wow, what a with it, you can't imagine them going because like this casting is perfect. Yeah, this it's all perfect. works. Yeah, it's perfect. Tom Cruise. I feel like we've even praised Tom Cruise enough. He is so perfect in this. The, He's so the good. Poisoned charisma. Uh, the and the writer uh, Beattie wanted the studio to cast Robert De Niro as Max. Um, the studio as Max as Max. God fucking damn it! Jesus this is the, this is it. This is the worst writer in showbiz. I, I mean, I don't. I think this movie's great, but I think it was rewritten. This is, is the that most because he saw Bronx Tale. No, and it was like it's because of Taxi Driver. Oh fuck off! It's because of Taxi Driver. He's like, but he's like the opposite. He's oh, like God. really restrained and fastidious. It's this is like you know the studio is like oh yeah well yeah we'll yeah. take that into consideration yeah we'll call Bobby we'll see oh, what happens you know what we kind of think maybe someone younger this is a writer who doesn't understand his own script if he was going to try to cast this dude as old like I get yeah. it it's like a guy who has had a pipe dream for a while but it's so imperative that it's a dude who still has a lot of his life ahead of him yeah because yeah. the point it all is, hangs in the balance yes on this that, one that night. there are stakes exactly oh wow well. Uh, as we stare into the abyss of that alternate future, I think we can all appreciate what we did get with uh, Collateral. Absolutely. And we will leave it there for tonight. Uh, next up is uh, his next collaboration with Jamie Foxx, Miami Vice 2008, I want to say. Six. 2006. Uh, Six. Oh, wow. So it was fast. It was a fast turnaround. It's fast. fast. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Are we watching the original theatrical version no. or are we watching the director's cut? We're watching directors. Okay, fair enough. Uh, like, I I am firmly of the... So, I am firmly Miami Vice-pilled. And I'm not even sure Michael Mann is Miami Vice-pilled. He's like, we didn't get to shoot the end of the movie we wanted. So, like, I don't really like... like I don't really, It's an incomplete movie. I don't like it. I'm fully on board with, like, Secret Masterpiece. Now, admittedly, okay. is that an impression that's a few years old based on like one, like let's give this another shot viewing. Yes, absolutely. But there's more going on there than you think. I'm going to tell you right now. I hated Miami vice. The first time I watched it and I did not see the director's cut. I saw the original theatrical cut and I thought I could not watch the theatrical cut. I got like 30 minutes in and I was like, I do not know what is going on, nor do I care. My dad and I saw this in theaters, did not like it. We're disappointed. I, so. I really didn't take to it. But at the same time, I have seen parts of it since then. And I have not, I don't think I have watched it the whole way through since then. Hmm. This is the time for reappraisal for me. I'm going to I'm going to give it an honest go. I'm going to start from zero. Wow me. Let's see. Let's see if this actually holds up. If there is actually something here. What what happened with the director's cut? Do you know like what the. Huge amounts of content, okay. uh, not content. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, I know, but huge amounts, of, huge amounts of material that like got cut were re-added. It becomes a much more rambling picture, but in a way that I think suits it. Okay. This is like, gotcha. it is a sprawling crime epic that in the theatrical cut is awkwardly and imperfectly cut down to try to be more intelligible, but as often happens, ends up being less intelligible and feeling just less intelligible in terms of like how the how the movie unfolds and, and how it's cut together. Okay. The director's cut, I think, improves a lot of that. The thing it cannot solve is it's been a while since I've I read the backstory on this, but my understanding is 
Jamie Foxx got mugged in one of the places they were shooting and was like, I'm not going back there. And that right. was where they were going to shoot the end of the movie. And also began throwing up like a lot of he got real sick of just doing the Michael Mann shit of like, I don't want to do the stunt. I don't want to do the shot. Apparently, uh, I think man sort of talks about he developed like a phobia of boats during during the shooting. Um, and so this. started like really fight against like the shots that like uh, sequences that involve like him running onto or near or between boats, which can be a problem in a Miami Vice. Movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh. so like the relation, but the thing is like, it's like the relationship would run its course. Mm-hmm. Jamie Foxx by all accounts does have a persona where he can be difficult to work with, but also Michael Mann pushed all his buttons in this. And so like the literally, the production kind of unraveled, I guess, uh, and and they kind of had to put together an ending, an ending and that I still think mostly works. Interesting. I have well, a then question. Also, oh, go ahead. Doug. Sorry, you asked well, the real, real question. Just, I have a bullshit question. Okay. Well, the the, uh, the other thing I was just going to add is I think there was other trouble going on on this set as well because mm-hmm. I think Colin Farrell was like in the middle of like before he went to go get treatment for alcoholism during this and also there is the aspect of gong lee being in this movie and basically having to learn her lines phonetically yes for gosh. which i i think frustrated a lot That's of the hard. other actors it's a tough task uh yeah. my question is if you're going to also be covering uh the miami vice the game for the playstation portable console which i think is Fuck. the first michael mann video game right <sighs> yeah it was the first adaptation of any of man's material well fingers crossed for codemasters ford versus uh not Ford versus ferrari but uh their ferrari i guess Was that really a psp game it's a psp game i'm looking at Was it, it only a PSP, psp game i guess i don't know that for sure let's see i'm gonna have to look up psp yep. emulator uh-huh. uh, yes Steam Deck. it literally is just a psp game mm-hmm. wait rebellion made this rebellion made this for Mitzi gave it a 24. It's all about sniping now. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> Wait who, a minute. Hang on. I'm having this? some did terrible you, sense memory here. Did you play? Uh-oh. Did you review this? No, uh Ryan reviewed this game. Alex. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, so- that sounds correct. He and I kind of traded off on licensed games. So okay. there was a 50-50 shot. It was him or me. So I am. I've mentioned this before, but I am always gratified the sheer number of times that some obscure dog shit game. Like I need to look up like, what did people think of this? And like there you are, in the <laughs> trenches of 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 GameSpot. Oh, just being Ryan like, liked this game. Ryan, yeah, Ryan gave it an all right score. It was a give it a seven point three. It's Rebellion. They're not they're decent at making games. Yeah, it's Rebellion making a PSP licensed game. Sometimes things are better than they have a right to be. You're right, huh? You're right. Like you know, sometimes you find diamonds in the rough or driving a cab around LA. Uh, so yeah, we'll be back next month with Miami Vice. Uh, Austin, thank you so much for for swinging through on this one. Had a blast. Um, Thanks for having me. It's the one from the jump. I was, I think, if I search our our Discord chat, Rob, <laughs> I'd probably be like, listen, I'm too busy to hop on this one, but Collateral, you get me for Collateral. Hit me up on Collateral. Hit yeah, me up absolutely. when we get to Collateral. What are you doing, Collateral? And the fact that we solved the the mystery of like the set decor in Ida's hospital room. Uh, I think justifies the entire manhunting project. We are the first people to ever discover this. Please clip That's that one belief. out. You got to put that on. You got to put that out on socials. Drive people to, yeah. to the. That that one might be a blog post. That's, like we saw finally it. we finally answered. 
uh, I'm sorry. Question. Need to take it. But what's the best way to sell this? Uh, it's an Easter egg. The it's hidden a, Easter egg. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that you never that you never knew existed in Ida's Michael Mann's secret Becker fandom. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, and the layers. Becker, yeah. also a show consumed with concerns about the cost of health care. Wow. Have true. money or die. Becker, you know, memorably says uh, is what HMO stands for. And what do we think is holding Max's Max and Ida's head underwater? Becker uh, says, I do care. this professionally. I do this as a job. <laughs> All right. Well, it was it was a blast going through this. It was it was a blast unlocking the the hidden secrets uh, and Easter eggs of Collateral. Uh, and hey, it was it was great doing this for our audience of uh, Waypoint Plus subscribers. Thanks for listening and subscribing, and uh, putting up with this extremely ex- extremely specific brand of bullshit. Till next month, peace. <laughs>